have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. And welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the European ending to my Sunday night movie. <laughs> Wait, this was displayed on a Sunday? Yeah. Oh, that's inconvenient. It was, it was the ABC Sunday movie of the week. Oh, yeah, no, that sounds inconvenient just in general. Just here's where I'm getting at. Like, Sunday is such a weird day to ever, like, do any amount of celebrating because you're getting into the work week. The average American citizen is getting into the work week. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, yeah, I want to really push myself with a movie late into the night. Unless it's earlier in the day in which, like, why would I watch a movie at, like, 2 p.m. in the middle of everything else I could potentially do on my weekend? I'm thinking that the rationale is so that it's something to talk about at the water cooler. I legitimately think the point is that they show it Sunday night. Some people go back to work on Monday. They talked about it with their coworkers. You know what would work better with that? A TV series, not a movie. Because usually when you get people talking, you get people going back to it. If it's just on the television and it's gone, and this was the age of live television and not DVR, I mean, at best you might just get more people in the seats of potential other movie, but then you can be exploring a whole new genre. Oh, if they did it Saturday, though, people might have forgotten about it by Monday. It's possible. <laughs> and I, I said work, but also school, too, because admittedly, there are probably teenagers who would have caught things like this as well. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're talking about the Twin Peaks International Pilot from the year 1990. Spoilers are in order for any and all David Lynch material and Twin Peaks material before the return. Did you say who you are, by the way? Mm, I am probably the Unplugged Professor, still he mulling over that. remains the Unplugged Professor, <laughs> and our <laughs> trivia source for today is the Twin Peaks Wiki. I did a little consulting with that to, you know... <laughs> you know. No, I don't. Yeah. Please elaborate. Yeah, you know. Why Why would you ever look at these sources? For context, this international pilot was a contractual obligation that Lynch was kind of forced to do and Mark Frost was forced to do. So, quick question on this regard. Like, was it contractual obligation that when they made the series and started the series, not necessarily series, but started making the pilot, that they had kept that in mind, that they had to from the beginning, make sure there was an ending to this pilot. I don't know if we have any proof of when exactly they knew. If it was in their contract, I would like to think that they knew contract. Like, it would have been in the writing before they started. Mm-hmm. Now, did they read the writing? Did they remember it? That's <laughs> Do something that... Do you ever that... read the terms and conditions, Khalil? No, you just scroll past this. I, it's I... like, yeah, hey, this is important. Just kind of like sign on the dotted line. He is my soul. Let's go. It's, it's kind of strange because a lot of the cast and crew will go on record saying they didn't think this would get picked up. But at the same time, it almost feels like there was a confidence from David Lynch and Mark Frost that it would because this ending feels so tacked on and rushed. While at the same time, I am led to believe if I were, you know, most likely they did know about it. I I don't think that they would just let this not be something they're aware of. So I think they knew they had to do an ending but they just went with it this way, mm-hmm. which to me, again, reads as confidence that they know they're going to get picked up anyway, so this ending doesn't matter very much. But then people also weren't sure it was going to get picked up, so it's in this very dubious region to my uh, mind. I, it, I will say, like, outright, I knew it's a little bit sooner than what we generally, like, start speaking about it. But f- by that context, it sounds like they made a very solid pilot 
but that was more of the focus. It wasn't like trying to balance out both like the idea of the pilot and the idea of the movie if both were conceived at the same time. It's just more so they made a really good pilot and then eh, we're just going to try our best to squeeze this by. Yeah, a great pilot that they tacked on an ending to make it a confusingly what is this kind of movie? And honestly, like I don't know many situations where this would be a contractual obligation. Like, have you heard of a show in which it's like, yeah, you know what? Uh, we need to alter the show to make sure that this seems like acceptable to all these other regions. Like, I, I've never heard of that before. I, I'm going to assume it's because provisionally it was being slotted as a movie of the week. So they had to give it an ending if it ended up being aired on its own. If they did end up going with the idea of just airing the pilot and that's it as a movie, they had to have something end. So I'm, I'm thinking that's why. Mm. I don't know how many shows on ABC started as a movie and then got adapted. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's situations in our lifetime that are different where it's like, Jimmy Neutron was a movie before it was a TV show, but it was like a theatrically released movie, and I think they knew if it went well, the show was going to happen anyway. Yeah, so. it, there was no blending of like, this was also yeah. a pilot. In I, I don't know how many cases were like this. Where, like, imagining the pilot episode of ER, they went in knowing that they had to wrap up every character thread because we're not going to go on for ten more years. Spoiler alert, in the movie version, they just stabbed the patient. Grey's Anatomy would read differently, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know how common that would be. It's something the I have not heard of. that Grey got a x-ray, and that's why I've never seen a Grey's Anatomy myself. Yeah. They just learned Grey's Anatomy by the end sure, of it. Sure, <laughs> sure. I'm just saying I've never heard of this. I'm not saying it hasn't been done. I'm just saying I'm not aware. Yeah, and I think the here. media landscape that you and I are familiar with and have grown up with is quite different. Yes. I, I don't think it's quite done that way anymore in the age of streaming, especially. So this international pilot was released on a video in Europe and then a few years later in the U.S. So you could just buy this mm. as the international pilot. Mm. This also was exhibited in some countries for theaters in Europe. And it played in a number of film festivals as well during 1990. Very well. This two-hour special, as I said, was originally aired as an ABC Sunday night movie. And in terms of TV ratings, it was number one for the night and number five for the week. And Good. no, I don't know if the week begins on Sunday or ends on Sunday when it comes to TV rating <laughs> measurements. <laughs> Good for it. Genuinely very good for it. I do think that there still is a fair amount to the international pilot that like stars it out to be very unique for television in general. So it's, it's good that it had some fantastic standing, and I'm glad that everything started getting picked up afterwards. Still weird. Still genuinely very weird. The pilot episode was nominated for eight Emmy Awards in 1990, including Best Drama, Best Writing, Best Directing, Best Production Design, Best Actor for Kyle MacLachlan, Best Director for David Lynch, and Best Supporting Actress for, I'm actually curious if you could guess, who do you think was nominated? I'll tell you, there's two people listed. Yeah. Who are the two actresses nominated for Best Supporting Actress from the pilot? Uh, I would say probably for the sake of, like, I'm maybe I'm taking the word supporting too literal, and I myself don't watch too many award shows myself, but the ones that end up being, like, supporting to the other cast or at least supporting to the overall narrative, I'm leaning to the actresses for Sarah Palmer as well as the actress for Lucy. So that'd be Grace Zabriskie and Kimmy Robertson. Mm-hmm. Both incorrect. Both incorrect. Both incorrect. Both incorrect. Uh, Piper Laurie for Catherine and Sherilyn Fenn for Audrey. Really? Yeah. They seem like the ones that are almost like the least present. Yeah, those are the ones that got the 
potential nomination award. You know, yeah. what, you know what? You know what? Great for them. Great for them. I'm happy for them. Just very, very surprised. They did not win. Um, the majority of these did not actually win. Dwayne Dunham did win the Emmy for Best Editing, and mm-hmm. Patricia Norris won for Best Costume Design. So those are the two wins were the editing and the costume design from the pilot. And very nice clothings. Very, very nice clothings indeed. So, Professor, how did it feel to be back in Twin Peaks, back at the beginning again? There is a whole new mindset that you get stuck with after going about with Twin Peaks for, what has it been now, Khalil, about two and a half years? Something like that. Something like that. We've been doing Twin Peaks for a very, very long time. So, it makes all of these extra strange and, I would say, shifts in tone and character very much more apparent, Mm -hmm. but also a few items in which may have not necessarily been hinted out, but through the new scope of seeing how everything comes out as a result, there's a new way to dig into the material, if you will. I can fully see where someone who is experienced with the material can dig even deeper in something, say, for example, Josie and Catherine's interactions with one another on how they are behaving about the entire mill and the power dynamics there. I recall that when we first started with the pilots, that's when I was like, yeah, do you know what, Catherine? This seems like a character that seems to be more for the workers. Meanwhile, Josie is someone who has to, like, shut things down in a more corporate manner. Nope, nope, no, I was very wrong. It's the opposite. It was very, very, very wrong. I, I wouldn't even say necessarily the opposite. They both have their own sort of, like, dealings that are more so focused on themselves. On the surface, though, Josie is the one giving the workers the day off in acknowledgement that one of the workers' daughter is, like, in borderline a coma in the hospital. Yeah. So I think that Josie appears softer than Catherine, who also fires someone just for being there at the wrong place. So, but yeah, underneath it, yeah. Debatable if Josie's even doing it for altruistic reasons. Mm -hmm. Was it just shutting down for that day or was it shutting down for good? I assumed it was shutting down for good. The day. Mm. They state the day. Ah. Because when Josie's over the intercom, she says that the mill will be closed for the day, I believe. Hmm. But but obviously it's not for good because it would continue in the next episode. (laughs) Those rogue loggers. I do believe genuinely that there could be a leeway period that's not necessarily like forever, if you will, if I've may spoke, I apologize, but more so as long as there's an investigation going on with what seems to be an important member of the mill's daughter, if you will, that this mill will be shut down indefinitely until like things kind of like settle over, mm-hmm. if you will, to avoid unrest and potentially accidents within the mill. Yeah, weirdly enough, it it seems like the police do not require that. I'm guessing it's because it was more, it was closer to the Packard house than I think the mill itself, even though they're nearby. Yeah. So I don't know if they needed to close the mill unless they had any reason to believe that there was like foul play at the mill, that the <laughs> mill was the site of a of any of the incidents. And I don't think there's ever any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking that's why they didn't need to. Although I'd be curious, because I could just imagine in my head, Pete looking out the window for hours on end, watching the investigators move around <laughs> just with curiosity. <laughs> but we don't know how often they actually go back there to investigate. We don't see it really. I mean, if we go for little distances, the cops are just like right around the corner staring at the mill. Maybe there's just like going to be more traffic going around there. This is true. This is true. <laughs> So, 
back when we watched the show for the first time, you told me that every episode got better as you went along. Yeah. And with the exception of episode 16, where Leland dies, there were both of us had some grievances there. Now that you're going back to the pilot, is the pilot still your least favorite or least exciting episode by virtue of it was the first one for you? Or does it move to the top now that you're seeing it most recently? How does it figure? I'm going to continue to clarify this to the best of my ability. It's much easier in an episodic format to try to layer things in a way that it's, this one's higher, this one's lower, this one's mid, this is that, this is this as opposed towards something that's very serialized as the narrative continues to go on and on and on and on and on. I genuinely see Twin Peaks as a very, very large story with one very notable dip around the center of it more than anything. And I would never try to marathon it. I'm not a mad person, but I do think that this chunkable sort of like digestible point is why it continues to progressing it better is because of the everything that came before it and things being added on top of that. It makes it very delectable and appetizing to me. I think that this is a very effective serialized series, despite, say, for example, a lot of directors, a lot of different styles being molded together. It is something that I thoroughly enjoy for reasons such as that. So in this respect, it's my least favorite, but that's just because the ball's starting to get rolling. I'm literally just starting to back the car out of the garage before the journey. Did you find yourself liking the episode more the second time through? Um, kind of, kind of not, kind of yes. Mostly because in the respects of this pilot and some of these shifts that are made towards the end... I was left a little bit more baffled more than anything. But for the most part, it still was a fun little return and also very humorous at moments, especially seeing certain characters being a little bit more mm-hmm. unhinged, whether or not it's from an idea of how this character would be portrayed or whether or not they were just starting to slip into their roles and sort of like stretch out. It's the fun part about pilots in general. Check out any sort of pilot whenever like someone's making a proof of concept for a series and the differences are probably the most appealing part. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm a little bit different in the sense that I do think that even though it's serialized, episodes can be standouts. And and I, I feel that way about a lot of shows that I watch. And when I think about the fan reception to Twin Peaks, there are certain episodes that I know fans talk about more positively. Um, even just thinking of The Return without saying what numbers there are, there are episodes of The Return that I know are much more talked about and really praised. So I, I don't think that that's a strange way to go about looking at the show. And I think that the pilot is one of the more popular and acclaimed episodes because it does have such a strong atmosphere. I think a lot of the direction choices are in here give it a different feeling than a lot of the regular episodes. It it felt like there was a different time and energy put into this because it was at the time standalone and it was so new. But even just the shot that comes to my mind when I talk right now is that there's a part where Doc Hayward is talking to his wife, Eileen, and they're, you know, discussing the matter to themselves about what's going on with Laura and with the, the murder. And it has a panning shot with the camera that goes up the stairs Mm -hmm. to Donna. I don't remember seeing a lot of shots like that in the show. Not a lot of shots that utilize uh, the full range of a set. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because shooting location-wise, they didn't have access to that house. You know, they might have been operating under, like, artificial sets that didn't have that scope to even pan around through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the illusion of sets at that point. But there's just certain moments where it's like, this looks different than most other episodes of the show. This feels a bit different. And I also think there's the novelty aspect where, because it does things first that are so iconic, like, other episodes will show the stoplight, you know, 
iconography at night or mm-hmm. they'll show the ceiling fan. But I think because it does it first, there is something to be said that it's very strong here. Mm-hmm. And then the strength of it kind of continues to the rest of the show. So I would still put the pilot quite high for a Twin Peaks episode for my taste because I think it had so much it needed to establish and did it so well. That being said, if this was all there was, you know, if there wasn't any show after the pilot, there'd be so many loose threads. <laughs> there are so many things where it's like you learn about all these affairs and relationships and it, there's no like clear reason to have this many unless there's going to be a show. Why go through the effort of hinting at Catherine talking on the phone with Ben if it's never going to continue? Mm -hmm. So it definitely works in tandem with the rest. Mm -hmm. I I acknowledge that serial component. If this was on its own as an island, (laughs) I I think it'd be very strange. It would be very strange. I think it adds to the overall scope of the community and more of the curiosities. But again, that's in the benefit of it being a pilot, something that's going to entice people both audiences and executives to say, yes, we want this to keep going. So again, that that's the strength of the pilot. It's a great pilot internationally. (laughs) So you mentioned a lot of the differences are very interesting. Who were some characters that you thought the differences between them were very funny or curious or just like they generally struck you in some way. Cooper, 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 There was a point where, like, during a... First off, when Cooper does arrive inside of the town, he gives off a very vibe and tone off of his voice that is very Mm Rosenfeld-esque, is the way that I worded it. He says that, look, sometimes, like, people like you will get in the way of me. I need to make sure that that doesn't happen and know that my authority comes first. And to know then, I believe it is the very next episode, or at least two episodes from then, where, like, Albert Rosenfeld comes to town and comes to check things out. And Cooper's like, excuse me, Albert, you're overstepping your bounds. This is how the people around feel. And Cooper's actively the one mm-hmm. getting in the way. It's it's very palpable in a way that somehow he gets so entranced by Twin Peaks. He already, there's already hints of it in the sense that he's, like, saying, like, tell me more about these trees. Tell me more about this. And it's, like, starting to really fly into it. I just didn't realize that he bit the bait so terribly fast if you will, by the next interaction. There's an outright appeal to it. Two things, I guess, come to my mind right away when you talk about that is that with the inclusion in Fire Walk With Me of Deer Meadow, we do see the other side of what a rural sheriff's department can do in response to the FBI coming in mm-hmm. and the attitude they can have. So I think through like Sheriff Cable, we do get an example of maybe why Cooper was testing the grounds and laying just a very firm line at the beginning to establish, like, I'm the one in charge here. Okay? Okay. So I, I think he's just, like, testing that ground, and again, the later inclusion helps that make more sense in hindsight. The other thing that comes to my mind as well is that it might be that Cooper starts kind of with that sort of rigid line about the hierarchy, but then... Very quickly, the town wins him over, the sheriff wins him over, and he becomes a bit more aware of the sensibilities of the town are not in conflict. Like, a lot of times, if you're in a position of being a supervisor or a leader or like a teacher, for example, you want to start off a bit more firm, and that lets you ease up later if you need to. Because if you start off firm, it sets that tone of power. Mm -hmm. And I think once he got a sense of what 
the dynamic was like he could soften. That being said, because time is so weird in Twin Peaks, it was like two days later. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't very long realistically. It wasn't really long. You've really got to stretch your overall belief in Cooper and his insights in order to make sure that it feels well with like sudden shifts and responses and mm-hmm. tones such as this. I, I do think there's a definite change. I, I also, from what I remember, not having rewatched the episode with Albert that you're referring to, yes. I don't think he outright takes Doc Hayward's side. I think he's more trying to get Albert to change his methods. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's against doing the autopsy. Mm-hmm. I think he's against Albert being so brutal about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more of a methodology than it is a philosophy. I think he's probably with Albert mm-hmm. that they need to do this autopsy. He didn't object to Albert coming in. Mm-hmm. I think he's more just like, Albert, you need to talk to them differently. Your tactics won't work. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to convince them if what you're do- if you're doing this. Because mm-hmm. Cooper's had success being kind to them. Yes. So it, I think, you know, for him, he knows how to talk to these people and Albert doesn't. Yes, it seems that for the most part. And that does sound a bit more right now that you sort of mentioned that. So that may very well be the case. But there is also notably there are tactics that Cooper does try out that maybe either educates this opinion or overall makes it very interesting when we see Cooper in with Bobby. And maybe it just wasn't like, again testing the character, testing the waters, like seeing how the dialogue flowed and seeing how Kyle would mold himself into the Cooper character. He's very intense with Bobby. I, I put it down in my notices, Cold Cooper. Cold Cooper. He's very detached, but also finds amusement in this. It's like, there's a point where like Bobby is just being outright aggressive and he's just like, yeah, no, look, you're not getting any, getting any further to me. And Cooper looks at him, turns to Truman and there's a nice little smile that goes on his face. You heard how I said that. Mm-hmm. There's a nice little smile that goes on his face. That is exactly how it slowly grows on his face as he turns back. And it comes off as, I know it was very joking-like, but it very much sounds like an individual that's about to take Bobby's kneecaps in the respects of like, so Bobby, <laughs> we're going to be playing this my way. Yeah, it's, it's very much a power move in a way that's meant to instill fear. Almost like Mm -hmm. it feels like it's meant to make Bobby uneasy Mm -hmm. and make him uncomfortable. And I don't normally associate the Dale Cooper of Twin Peaks as someone who purposefully tries to make people on edge or feel uncomfortable. Like maybe it's just like people that's close to him that we see moments with Audrey. But there's a point with Audrey where he's just like, listen, we're going to talk about this. Let's have some overall milkshakes and overall burgers. This makes it sound like he's going to be making it out of Bobby. And it's not even fully bad cop routine. Because one, there's no good cop. Truman says almost nothing at that table. Mm-hmm. But it's not even really bad cop, though, because I don't think he's being firm all the time. He's almost being mischievous. Mm-hmm. I would say even more than firm, where he's taking delight in really getting under Bobby's skin. And a lot of it's not even words, it's facial expressions. He'll he'll look over to Truman with just this like big old grin and then like look <laughs> back at Bobby. And just ask these driving questions. Again, it's in a way where it doesn't even feel like it's being, you know, the quote unquote, the straight man of the situation. Mm-hmm. He feels like he's toying with him. Playing with his food. Playing with as, his food. As he's enjoying his chocolate bunnies. Maybe Bobby is the chocolate bunny. Of course, we really can't talk about these things without thinking of the season two ending. Right now we have the context of Cooper coming back from the Red Room with Bob in the reflection, mm-hmm. how's Annie, and then the secret history of Twin Peaks with the Mayday message. This is the darkest coop we get 
other than the season two finale and the book. And this is the pilot. <laughs> so it's like we it's like David Lynch and Mark Frost had this sort of duality for Kyle McLaughlin's character where he had the lightness and the silliness of, you know, give me a donut. Oh man, these trees smell so great, man. This pie is so damn good. But then alongside that from the very beginning, Dale Cooper also had this sort of darkness and callousness where when he's at the hospital, he just keeps referring to Laura as the dead girl Mm -hmm. a lot without even considering, you know, he later says the victim, he does soften it later, but he doesn't say the name of the person. He should know Laura's name as it's his case. Mm -hmm. And then also when he's there, you know, the doctor says you really shouldn't question Ronette. She's not even really sure if she's here right now. She's very out of it right now. She's, you know, borderline unconscious. Yeah. And Cooper is just like, what do you mean? Like, stay what you mean. And then he like proceeds to want to investigate. And I understand looking at the fingernails, but his whole entire attitude, it's like he's studying in a, in a, in a specimen. Like it doesn't feel like he's talking to a girl who had been assaulted and nearly killed. Mm-hmm. There's just, again, some sort of disconnect here that I think is interesting to have always been there from the start. <laughs> So aside from all these differences that we notice, obviously, between the pilot and the rest of the show later, it is the same pilot we've watched before, except the 20 minutes tacked on to the ending. <laughs> so you've never seen that stuff before. I'm not even I'm sure not. if I'm not even sure if I've seen it. I don't remember. I've heard about it. I knew about it. I don't know if I actually ever watched it before. What did you think of the new, well, new to us, content in the international pilot? Now, I won't lie. Like, I have heard dialogue that from like yourself, that there was an amount tacked on. I don't know if that was any sort of thing in which would influence my mind. I do not believe that it's influenced my mind, mostly because I genuinely also feel that it does feel very tacked on. It feels like something that was put together and quickly resolves things, and then it just it comes off as disappointing. If anything, it's clearly not Lynch and Frost vision. Mm-hmm. Like you, you just can tell by the way this feels and is paced versus the everything that comes before it. it there was not a steady hand here. It's it, not as purposeful. It's not as purposeful. Like for the most part, a lot of the content is Mike coming forward where he's just being ominous and saying everything that he's going to recite through the rest of the series in the sense that he's being mystical, still being mysterious in a respect but for the most part being very plain and walking forward like and this is the example i gave forward mostly because this is me when i was young i told you that it sounds like a high schooler writing out the mysterious background character who's there to give exposition and do one cool thing inside of the story like Mm -hmm. it's exactly what mike feels like because he exposits a bit of information he makes everything clear, like, that's Bob. And then he says, oh, yeah, you know what, Bob? He's in the basement of the hospital right now. Uh, in which we do go downstairs. We see the firewalk with me tattooed Bob. And his demeanor, his overall eloquence, doesn't too fit with the overall, like, villainous role. He feels a bit eccentric light, more than he does feel, like a force to be reckoned with or a murderer. And I do think that the actor Frank Silva does a fantastic job acting. For Bob? Acting. Mm -hmm. But for Bob and the things that I enjoy about Bob, there's just so much more that I think you can do with an ominous figure that lurks in the background, lightly growling, and less is more very much for the character, I think. I just wanted to jump in real quick and also mention that we do see 
Mike, Philip Gerard, the one-armed man, one time in the pilot as normal, mm-hmm. where he is at the hospital when Cooper and Truman are at the hospital during the daytime at like 1.30. And it is acknowledged, like Cooper says, like, you were at the hospital at 1.30. Yeah. So in the regular pilot that airs normally without the tact on ending, we do see him have a silent role very briefly on screen. Now, all of a sudden, he's given this extra part at the end. I am curious, you know, with the question of how much did they know they had to make this and how tacked on is it, I think that's one of the only elements of the ending that is foreshadowed in the rest of the pilot Mm -hmm. is that we do see this random guy unexplained at the hospital Mm -hmm. for like 10 seconds on screen. Was he brought out to just be on screen for 10 seconds or did they get that actor knowing they were going to do the ending? I I'm inclined to believe the latter. I think it's such a specific casting and such a specific (laughs) ominous tone that, Okay, and like even the stuff that you said he says throughout the rest of the show, what they would do then is that they would record him doing the through darkness, the magician longs to see, blah, blah, blah. Yes. They recite that poem. We just get that clip removed from the pilot, and it gets used later in episode two, I want to believe, because I know the Red Room was episode two. So a lot of this content gets used later with Mike and the Red Room, and even the part with Bob talking, there's the line where... Bob says, I'll catch you in my death bag. That got reused later. Yeah. And the, you may think I've gone insane, but I will kill again. That got reused later. What they cut out was the extra stuff around it, which I think was trimming out the stuff that was not as good, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. Because as as I'm okay with the catch you with my death bag, I will kill again thing. I'm less okay with him talking about, what was it, scallywags? <laughs> it's just, I, I couldn't take it seriously. He pulls out a cutlass. So, so again, for those who have not seen the international pilot or don't have access to it at the moment, the basic rundown is that it goes to Sarah Palmer on her couch, like at the end of the pilot normally, mm-hmm. except there's an extended sequence where she has this vision and memory of slow motion going through Laura's room and finding Bob at the bedpost. With overall, like, distorted volume in which, like, her voice is like, <laughs> And you mentioned before no. it's great to add subtitles. It's just very slowed-down vocals, but it's still very disorienting to overall experience, especially on television at it, the time. It helps us mm-hmm. and analyze it, yes. and it helps viewers understand it, but I do I do get the atmosphere and why they went for the <laughs> slow-mo thing. I think, it, I think it works. I don't think it's too silly. I don't think it's too silly, and I but I also do find a general humor with it. I'm glad that, at least in this instance, subtitles helped. More on that later. Anyway. <laughs> Lou Hamsta. <laughs> For those those real fans you remember, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but Sarah Palmer has this vision. While maybe drugged, maybe she's currently on drug medication at the moment. When it happens, unclear. And she shoots up, and we get that shot where Bob is in the mirror by Sarah Palmer. In the original pilot, it's only on screen for like a split moment. Whereas in this one, she's actually standing in such a way or sitting in such a way where he's in view in that mirror a long time, which creates this weird feeling where it cuts back and forth between Bob at the bed and Bob right next to her in the mirror, which I thought was kind of interesting uh, to see the parallels happening there. Gotta love and, you, Bob's back the back. And very ominously, what she announces is, Leland, I saw him. Yeah, that's pretty funky, don't you think, that 
overall uh, good old, like, the dialogue. There's, there's some fun dialogue moments in specifically this last portion that you could say alludes to potential ideas that you could put together. But she spaces out enough to say, Leland, I saw him. Right. And, uh... <laughs> is it telling Leland... <laughs> Is it telling Leland I saw the killer or is it saying I saw Leland in a way? Which, mind you, like later on, Leland does make a phone call to Lucy saying that, yes, my wife thinks that she saw the killer and uh, she's ready to tell the police about this. But the funny part is that Leland is also like talking on the phone, giving this information, not Sarah Palmer. Leland, known for constantly drugging his overall wife and potentially could be a very influential person, if you will, in instances such as this during these points and breakdowns. There, there could be something menacing sort of like still wrung out of this like a nice towel. What I do want to point out then is that if Leland is on the phone communicating this, unless you believe that he then shot out of his room, went to the hospital, went to the basement, lit some candles, I'm assuming <laughs> when we see Bob, it is not Leland looking like Bob. I'm assuming... Bob had, again, if we're using the fiction of the rest of the series, right? Stuff after the pilot. It would be Bob leaving Leland's body and manifesting physically the way that we see Philip Gerard physically manifested. I mean, and for this overall moment, if I'm not mistaken, Leland is not present when Sarah Palmer is with the other, like, sheriff individuals. Or at the very least, I think that maybe that scene is, like... Not visibly seen. I'm trying to remember. I don't think he's wise. there. I, but regardless, there is one a point where we've seen Leland drive, and especially Leland Bob drive, in which to say that this person obeys traffic laws <laughs> uh, is really cutting corners there. But I see a lot of red lights in Twin Peaks, and he would drive through all of them. Yeah, but not to mention like having that little conversation and then starting to go on the move for whatever reason. That is something that could be. Tempting to say that he can't exist there. For what reasons or for what, why? If it's just Mike's siren's call? If he just decided that it's his birthday, so he's going to hunker down inside the basement and light some candles for him. And he's going to make a wish, if you will. Ha, 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 ha. So I don't think this works. Like, I don't think it makes sense. It, I, I don't think it makes sense with the rest of the fiction that would come later in the series and through other material. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a reason why Bob would be outside of Leland, physically corporeal, in the hospital basement lighting candles while Leland is kind of warning. I, I just, I, I don't know if that gels with anything else we're given because mm -hmm. because otherwise Bob never clearly exists physically in the world. We have a vision of Bob standing over kind of the bed when Josie dies, but we very much see him appear and disappear like it's some sort of supernatural thing like the giant. Mm -hmm. We don't get a sense that he's literally there, and if Cooper would have pulled out his gun, he could have shot Bob <laughs> right there. I don't get that vibe. So there's something kind of unique about this situation that mm -hmm. I just don't think fits the rest of the show. No, it doesn't, like, fit necessarily with the rest of the show per se, but it most certainly still flirts with the rest of the show. I know that there was a moment that you mentioned that Cooper does say something along the lines of, like, Lucy and Andy being present, but mm -hmm. Lucy and Andy are not present in certain episodes, in which that could be a line in which this overall dream reality or something that is in overall Cooper's dream, intuition dreams that we've had in the past. To, to clarify what we're talking about here, I believe I mentioned this in the season one look back, I want to say, is that in episode two, which is the third episode... Cooper has that dream of the Red Room and he gets 
Laura whispering in his ear who the killer is. He calls Harry and he says, yes, it can wait till tomorrow morning, but I'm going to tell you tomorrow who killed Laura Palmer. Flash forward to episode three, aka, AKA the fourth episode, and he tells Truman that he forgot. But when he does mention this dream, he does point to Andy and Lucy saying that they were there in the dream. However, we never saw Andy and Lucy in the episode two dream of the Red Room. Yes. Where did we see Andy and Lucy? In the international pilot ending. (laughs) So I think the implication that other people have taken as well is that the international pilot's ending had been retconned as a dream that Cooper has in season two. Mm -hmm. And we're given the magician chants out, we're given the Bob part, and we're given the Red Room, which is enough to infer that maybe the rest of the international pilot, that ending is still quote-unquote canon Mm -hmm. as a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the pilot, in the international pilot, it's just the ending. There's no evidence necessarily that Cooper is dreaming Andy and Lucy up. It's just kind (laughs) of treated as it's actually going on. So it's almost like it's the, it was all a dream trope, but just to write off the ending of the international pilot, don't worry. That didn't happen. It was just a dream, but he still references Andy and Lucy later, which is a, again, a strange curiosity beyond just being a wizard of Oz tie in. And what a dreamlike experience Lucy and Andy really are in this international ending. It is sur- it is surreal in a different way than the Red Room. It feels like I'm having a weird hallucination. It's a series of events happening all at once. It is where Lucy is trying her best to paddleball, and I, I, I feel for you, girl. I can't handle those myself and just, like, fling them all over the place. Sometimes it hits the board, sometimes it doesn't. But overall, just flinging around a paddleball. Meanwhile, Andy is off in the corner playing a trumpet. One of his, like, legs on his overall uniform is just, like, up, well, exposing it's not his, his shin. It's not his police uniform, right? Because it's after work. It's after, it's after the, work. But They're I'm at pre- Lucy's house. But he's, I if I'm not mistaken, and I might be misremembering. It seems that he is in daytime attire, which I went to assume was his tan shirt and brown pants, mm-hmm. just with the extra pieces sort of like taken off. The missing pieces. The missing pieces, yes. And meanwhile, Lucy's already in a bathrobe. Mm-hmm. And so like two already like different feels going on right here for multiple reasons. Well, there's a deep reddened light cascading into the background down upon them. And it's around this point where we do get that call from Leland Palmer that's trying to run a report through Lucy so that Lucy can reconnect with the rest of the cops, and she's going to make phone calls. And the reason why she's doing this is because no one's at the department basically right now. Truman was called over to Josie in the deleted scene about the raccoon, which we do see Truman, you know, with Josie, and Josie's like, oh, you needed... No, no, Truman was like oh, I heard that you wanted to see the sheriff. So Truman is currently occupied, which is where I think it went to Lucy when Leland couldn't get a hold of the uh, the department. I feel sorry for Lucy, though, because her job just doesn't really end. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but I, I just, I look at all this stuff with the, the paddle ball and the one knee and the trombone, and I'm just like, I think this is just meant to be silly. It is. I don't think there's any reason beyond that it's a grand metaphor for what's bound to happen because apparently like this is the way that they kind of like tidy down they mentioned somewhat in their dialogue that they're just like getting ready for bed like this is just a nightly activity that i guess settles them down of poor trumpet playing and paddleball it gets them in the mood oh my yes i love to bang those balls and by balls i mean paddle balls before uh slumbering deep into sleep and beholding well and there's trumpet. also the blowing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. so i just 
I, there's an unreality to this because when Leland's on the phone with her, he's like, yeah, my wife, she thinks she remembered who was the killer because she thinks she remembers it from this morning. And Lucy's like, really? How? And Leland's like, yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? And then later when she calls Truman, she doesn't even seem to, like, it's just the way it's delivered where it's like, yeah, she thinks she remembered who the killer is. It's just, it just doesn't sound believable at all. Mm-hmm. It's just so abrupt. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to foreshadow this whatsoever. By the way, good on, uh, good old Deputy Tommy the Hawk Hill, in which I, uh, like, she makes sure to state his full entire title because it's important that he gets down there too. We just made the joke recently that nobody ever says his full name. <laughs> and now she literally did say, Deputy Tommy the Hawk Hill. And because she, he's good for sketching. Which is not a thing anywhere else, right? Because Andy's usually the one who does the sketches. I don't recall, like, anyone being named for the sketches. Andy did sketches during, like, the trial stuff. Ah! He, I think, I this is where my memory's coming in, I'm pretty sure he's the one that drew the Bob picture in the first place in the show. I don't know. I think they realized Hawk did everything and should have been the sheriff. So I think that I think they just gave it to Andy, which I actually like Andy being the sketch artist more than Hawk. Mm. I think Hawk is maxed out in so many staffs that I think having Andy be a good artist. It's cute. I like that. I'm, I'm good with that. One thing also kind of weird is that when Cooper is reached about all this stuff that's happening, he is in bed. And I don't know about you, but the way he was sleeping to me seemed very restless. Yes. Like it seemed like he was in an REM state of like having some sort of weird dream, maybe even nightmare. But then when he's on his tape recorder talking to Diane, he says that he was sleeping soundly at the great Northern. Yeah. I would not call what he was doing. Sleeping soundly with sounds. He was, it was soundly. There were soundings that were happening. Sounds. Do you think that was like an intentional dissonance or difference? I think or do it, you think, like, that is soundly sleeping to Cooper? I think that that is an intentional dissonance, personally. I think that having something strange sort of pop up before a lot more strange things pop up, it's kind of like easing into that atmosphere as we are going to very much jump off the cliff very, very soon. And if we're going with the episode two dream interpretation of this ending, Cooper is dreaming that he wakes up. Mm-hmm. He's not really woke right now. He's, he's <laughs> dreaming about waking up. And the one-armed man, Mike, when he's over the phone, he says he knows who killed Teresa Banks. That's the way he kind of introduces the situation. So it is interesting to hear that being kind of the Mm lead-in, not Laura Palmer. He does start with Teresa Banks first, which I feel like has, again, more significance after Fire Walk With Me. Yes. Whereas in the pilot as is, you hadn't really heard that much about Teresa Banks, just that she was the previous victim in a series, potentially. I think that you can still, like, make an argument where there is, like, a confirmation through this phone call, like reassuring Cooper that, oh, yes, I do know. And yes, it does, in fact, go all the way back. This is very likely a repeat of what has happened. You are correct, because I also know the answer to this question. I think it's just a very quick shorthand to imply something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, a few things on the hospital conversation. They walk in, Mike is in the shadows, and his rationale for this is he tells him, you know, don't don't try to turn on the light. Mike's telling Cooper this because the transformer might be bad. In other words, it might be a Decepticon. (laughs) But we do see earlier in the pilot, the light flickering, having some troubles. There is a precedent to this, but the effect is if you go in with the mindset of the rest of the series, he isn't allowing the electricity to be on. It's something that you could argue that, yes, and I think that that may be a potential intention, especially since he sits inside the corner of the darkness and awaits, and almost like that knowledge could be known to him. But on the same token, like, 
the funky part of the pacing of this feels like I've been at the hospital all, all day. I know about this. It just feels like, yes, I called Cooper and then it's like, oh, well, that kind of sucks. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to turn it off and wait here. I already said I was going to wait here. And he just like walked in the corner off to the side being like, that, that, that that's just annoying. Please, Cooper, don't turn that on. I don't know. I don't think it was intentional. <laughs> I, I'm not, I am not saying that there's the reason why the lights aren't on is because electricity. I'm saying electricity. that in, I'm saying in hindsight, I'm saying that, you can interpret a reason why Mike would not want to have the light go on. I'm not saying that that was the reason Lynch and Frost had at the time. Now, mind you, I'm still going with the more intentional reading of it, mainly because of looking at the general themes that David Lynch not only kind of goes for for the sake of, like, that darkness of, like, you know, the good old meme electricity, Mm -hmm. but very notably... I'm still very suspicious on the wording of, like, any place that you could ever be sitting atop of. Maybe it's just more so what the place is, but being on top of a convenience store and being settled. Convenience store, as a location for these overall spirits and being noted as this location for spirits, I've only started to recently think to myself, it's like, well... Unless you're working with, like, a bodega or something like that. I've rarely, very, very rarely ever seen, like, a second floor to any convenience store. And, yes, we do see, like, this rundown place where we're to assume that is the location in Fire Walk With Me. But also, it's shady as hell up on top of that convenience store. I don't want to go anywhere near this. So some of the reading that I almost put forward is thinking, all right, what's up top of the overall convenience store? What is above a convenience store? That would be something such as a large electrical sign. That is something very notable above any convenience mm-hmm. store, anywhere that you pass, especially as you and I have traveled around those sort of like locations, especially inside of some mountainous small town place, such as where Twin Peaks lies or like the surrounding areas in Washington. So you are suggesting... I'm suggesting that they live in electricity. And okay. this, the, the themes of like things lurking electricity and Mike's overall caution around that could be potentially something that was thought of as early as this. So do you mean electricity and like the wires of the ceiling or what do you mean? Through the transformer to do not turn on the transformer. It could be some like uh, he's being hidden and he's hiding off to the side so that Bob doesn't catch wind of him. Where did they last lurk? It was amongst uh, above a convenience store, which maybe they lurked within that sign. They are electricity in a way. Whatever electricity means is a larger hole. We had a whole discussion. Yeah. Bordering on argument off pod about the idea of what counts as above. I might have misunderstood you now that we're talking about it now. Okay. I'm curious. When you say the sign, I thought you meant the sign that's closer to the road. No, I'm talking about the sign that's held right on top of the convenience store to blatantly advertise. Above the door, yes. Oh, no, I would... Okay. The reason... (laughs) This is more for my sake to communicate this than even for the pod. I thought you were trying to say that Mike was referring to the sign that is oftentimes several feet away at the opposite end of a parking lot Mm -hmm. up in the air advertising that there's a gas station or a convenience store. I did not know you meant the one literally connected to the building. Yes, I did mean the one connected to the building. That is why I was fighting you so much is because I was saying how far away does something that's above count as above still? Because I was going off about like if a bird is above me, how close would that have to be? Okay. I understand now what you're saying. I think that makes way more sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's such an interesting conundrum because 
If you think about above a convenience store, there's several ways you can go. You can go with the electricity above it with the sign or in like the workings. You can go with like the rafters, the crawl spaces, the attic potential. Maybe mm-hmm. not a full room, but it's the idea that something's lurking above where there shouldn't be anything. Mm-hmm. And there might be that idea, again, leaning more into that, that when they say above the convenience store, they do mean the empty space, the nothingness above the roof. Mm-hmm. So there's that angle that could go. Or it could just be nonsense. It mm-hmm. could mean absolutely like nothing <laughs> at all when they made it. And I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of intentionality than you are because mm-hmm. it feels like this ending was such a mix of random stuff mm-hmm. that I'm looking at it. And I'm like, I don't know if everything had a reason at the moment. Like when they have the idea in the red room of the birds sing a pretty song. Did that mean something in David Lynch and Mark Frost's head? Or was that just a mystery to throw out there, a weird little thing to, again, try to bait the studio into giving them another, giving them episodes to give them a season or to make the audience who saw this curious as to what's going on? Were there any, like, reasons to do these things beyond adding more mystery? Because if they they were forced to add an ending to this international pilot, I feel they're like, fine. We'll give you an ending, but we're also going to give you all of this unexplained stuff that we know you want answers to. How much is overall a form of just trying to create an atmosphere and throwing ideas about that may not necessarily have an endpoint? How much of them are thoroughly thought up overall puzzle boxes for people to uncover? I think that's the magical part whenever you sort of like dig into something such as Twin Peaks. And I think that genuinely it's very effective, especially whenever it comes to, say, for example, convenience store talk like this. And that's where I have fun with the idea of Philip Gerard avoiding electricity and amongst his overall candles, sitting inside of dark room, sitting inside the back, refusing to turn on the transformers, being wary of all these sort of like formats and places as he goes deeper into his overall, I would almost call it not necessarily madness, but medicated dream Mm -hmm. that he has to, in order to survive for himself. And it's very notable on how he can make some music in the background as he approaches Bob later on and uh, does a dirty deed, if you will. And this, this does matter because if you take the international pilot to be purposeful and canonical in your head, that does give implications about things that have, you know, influence. So, for example, Mike, when he's at the hospital, says that sometimes Bob works among the infirm and the injured of the species referring to, again, hospital patients. Yeah. And that Mike says he's been watching and waiting for a year for Bob to come out again. I know you have something you want to say on that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. You, but... You missed a very important we'll, we'll get two there. words. We'll, we'll get there, we'll get there, mm-hmm. we'll get there. My point, though, is, is that just on the surface, going by what we're presented with, with the subtitles in mind, the idea that Mike has been watching and waiting for over a year or for a year for Bob to come out, if you consider this all purposeful that becomes like part of the timeline. Whereas I don't know if that gels with fire walk with me or the rest of the material. Is there any other evidence that he's been watching him for a year? Mm -hmm. This is a think of the first time we've ever been given that information. Mm -hmm. Does it count is where I think it gets kind of spicy. So even though it's only a 20 minute section and a lot of it is reused later in the show, it's the stuff that isn't reused that it's kind of just like, how seriously should you take this? So now go ahead and say your spiel about the subtitles because I think it is legitimately interesting. It's very interesting. Like we already have another portion of subtitles where we question. There's also later on Lou Hamsta that we have that makes it very 
dubious to trust subtitles, if you will. Some things could be intentional. Some things could be woman. Uh, Referring to an incident where Catherine Martel was talking and the subtitles, at least on the ZDA collection, say woman instead of Catherine, even though it's clearly Catherine speaking. Yes. So at this point, like I, there's enough evidence for caution when it comes to subtitles. Still enough to dig into and say like, wait a second, was this intentional? What do we do about this? But still enough to question. Inside of this, when being spoken to, this being Mike speaking to Truman and Cooper, the exact line is, I was watching Mr. Cooper for over a year waiting for Bob to come out again. The commas are on both sides around Mr. Cooper. I was watching Mr. Cooper for over a year waiting for Bob to come out again. The way it is delivered however, is very skewed to the point that it's questionable whether or not there is a comma Mm -hmm. or if there's a certain amount of evidence where he's just like, I was watching Mr. Cooper for over a year waiting for Bob to come out again. And judging from the end of the overall series with the end of season two, if he is to be watching Bob over a year, that timeline would be a little bit funky, if you will. But if Mike was specifically looking out, watching, I was watching Mr. Cooper for over a year and waiting for Bob to come out See, again. See, this is That's where I, where I it's think like, it's probably the most interesting thing in the entire last 20 minutes mm-hmm. because of the stuff later. Mm-hmm. So I think if you don't have the subtitles on and you just hear it, mm-hmm. it is almost 50-50 which version you're going to take away. Mm-hmm. Because well, I, I, I just looked at the subtitles. I'm used to watching things with subtitles, and I just took it for face value that... He is doing a comma aside to Mr. Cooper to clarify he's speaking to Cooper during this. However, once you point out the alternative, when we rewound the situation and listen to it, he doesn't pause very long. Mm -hmm. I think he pauses, but just long enough for reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And it just changes the entire dynamic of what he's getting at. While I do believe what... David Lynch and Mark Frost have said in interviews that they knew or wanted Leland to be the killer from the beginning. I'll believe that Leland was already in their mind the killer from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I don't believe, personally, that they had it already in mind that Dale Cooper was going to become possessed, affected, replaced by Black Lodge influences, like in the end of season two. And because I doubt that, I just, I have a hard time believing that the intentional reading Mm-hmm. was him saying, I've been watching Mr. Cooper to see if Bob would come out of Mr. Cooper. And also because in the international pilot, the ending doesn't directly do anything with that unless you start really reading into the 25 years later thing differently. Unless you do read into that, but there's also a potential argument I would give is that instead of looking at it as the result of what happens, like the worst possible ending that happened with Cooper, maybe it's also to say that if they weren't if they didn't think themselves like, yes, this is what we're going to do eventually down the line. I think there could be still a reasonable argument that they had a good idea on what Bob was and how that would conflict with Cooper to a point that maybe Cooper would have at least had a struggle or something where Bob could come out. Mm -hmm. I do think that that's just enough of an idea that perhaps could be leaned into later episodes and they've given themselves enough elbow room to decide whether or not how they want to go about it. So in your heart of hearts, what do you believe the intention of that line was in the script? I believe that it's to throw off the people watching a little bit because I think that thanks to the prior discussion with Leland Palmer and do believing that Leland Palmer was the planned killer, if you will, as Sarah Palmer says a very, very funny thing, 
I do think that there's a little bit of toying here. I do think that there is enough room here to say that the directors and the writers are toying and playing with ideas here that could lead into fun realizations that upon a second watch, this could be something very fun to revisit. If anything, there's a nice little bonus, if you will, looking at the catalog of a greater story. I don't I, I do genuinely believe that, though sometimes David Lynch does things for atmosphere, I do also think, as David Lynch's catalog uh, I continue to look at, as well as Mark Frost's reputation as himself as the writer, putting up little breadcrumbs to mm-hmm. play and dabble with, f- to sort of like scratch people's brains with, I wouldn't put it past him to put them in pieces of dialogue like this, especially if it's so exposition heavy. It, it's just, in order to believe that, you have to have a lot of faith that they are very forward-thinking that they have a very clear, at least few, mm-hmm. a few very clear ideas of where this could go and where it would go to to do this. And by that term, I think to myself that it's not necessarily Cooper that I'm putting that trust into or they're writing Cooper, but more so what they believed, A, what Bob was, and B, what Leland was, and how that could affect the outward story sure. thereafter. Could affect Cooper in the long term, even if not at that moment. Exactly. That's fair enough. I have less to say about this, but also one thing that crossed my mind is when we get the part with Philip Gerard talking about having the tattoo on the left shoulder, he had been marked, and then he saw the face of God and cut the arm off. Yeah. You can interpret it in light of the secret history of Twin Peaks with the ideas of the different types of aliens and spirits in the sense that if the marking was a tattoo, we do have the idea that people who have been abducted by the aliens end up with markings and tattoos, usually in the form of the triangles. But (laughs) bear with me here, bear with me here. We do have that correlation of strange marking appear on the body associated with abductions. Yeah. And I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that seeing the face of God could be one of those supernatural encounters of a different kind. Because the secret history goes through the idea of different ones particularly between the Greys and the Nordics, is it so much to believe that Philip Gerard could have been a man who got marked by one of the aliens, made a contract with them, basically, the way that we are given indications that a president may have given a contract in exchange for genetic material? Mm -hmm. Is it possible that Philip Gerard made a deal with that quote-unquote devil and then later had an encounter of a different kind and reverse that pact, essentially, by disavowing it the same way that the Nordic types had wanted the president to get rid of their armaments, so to speak. I think as Twin Peaks as a whole, in the absence of Firewalk, not Firewalk to me, in the absence of the international pilot, I think that there's a compelling read there. I think that there's a compelling and fun sort of insight, especially like holding on to the secret history. I think that m- what makes it a little bit silly is more so thinking about left arm tattoos, seeing Bob's tattoo that literally says fire walk with the fun font on his left arm and being like, wow, aliens were really on the fucking nose there, weren't and, they? It's unfortunate because I, I, I kind of I kind of hate it. It'd be fun, but it's literally a fire walk with me. And like the fire is literally bold in all letters. I kind of hate the tattoo. <laughs> And it sucks because I can't even just say, oh, this isn't canon. The ending doesn't count. Because that shot of Bob 
talking in that room, they do use clips of that in the show with the catch you in the death bag and I will kill again. So I never noticed it. I never noticed it, but unless they like photoshopped his shoulder tattoo off, he is wearing that, right? He has that tattoo. It gets obscured when he leans in because yeah. overall, like the shading of the overall tattoo kind of like hides under his sleeve. Uh, but when he's like standing plainly and like watching them to come through, it very clearly is on his shoulder, especially post restoration fire walk with Wait, me. Wait, so could you see that tattoo in the scenes that were clipped for the series? Maybe. I That's don't the recall question. seeing it. Because if you don't see it, I'm going to say it doesn't exist. <laughs> out of sight, out, out of, of sight. mind. Because it's not canon. Seeing is believing, okay? Because I throw out this whole ending otherwise. Man. Yeah, Bob's doing some weird candle ritual in the hospital basement, and he introduces it as, this is welcome to the killer's lair. And he's just being very, like, I don't know, flamboyant almost about it, but, like, very, like, weird and mysterious and, ooh. And it's I just don't buy it. But what I wanted to say... Just like, come around to my lair. Let me set you out some chips. Are you interested in my guac? Yeah, in that tone of voice. It's not necessarily scary. It's more just like, okay, fun at a Halloween party, maybe. <laughs> but but the thing that gets me, though, is that I don't feel like this is the killer's lair. I just feel like some guy, probably a homeless guy, just wandered into the basement <laughs> of a... Ho- I mean, look at... His anyway, excuse yourself. He has a nice spiker jacket on that he takes care of, and he's setting up nice candles. He's just trying to have a good time. Okay, he wanders into the hospital basement, sets some candles and lights them, and just waits for them to show up. This is my lair, and I'm just like, does no one go into this hospital basement? I feel like you just walked in here and claimed it as your lair. It's just a basement. It's not really even menacing. It's not like there's like creepy things on the walls. It's just. A basement. It's a, It's the boiler room. And not even that creepy of a basement. Like, I feel like in my mind, a basement sounds scarier than what this is. It's a boiler room. It's pretty well lit. When you think of the electricity idea, he not only has the element of lighting from the candles, but also electricity. He likes a well-lit room. Mm-hmm. You could say something like that. You could say something like that, but also there's been so many points of like, and maybe the things just got better. Maybe it was just like, uh, we'll put our budget into this at this time, mm-hmm. being like, this is the much better better place to put the budget that using that electricity and an effective way in a great lighting way. Like there's so many great moments. I think with Bob, when it comes to lighting that just seeing this overall state, yes, it does feel like they have literally walked into this guy who calls his basement, his lair. It's not even his basement. It's a random (laughs) hospital basement. It is. He's clean. He just showed up one day. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't instill fear at all, which is wild because every other thing with Bob, in the show. Yes. Does work. Yes. This is the only time it doesn't, and it's comical. You know what also is heavily comical? Uh, The fact that as they kind of continue this overall banter back and forth, if you will, and more overall illusions are made between Bob as well as Cooper, and he starts hearing things off in the distance, and he just calls out to Mike, and just almost like in that sense of like, Mike, Mike, I think I hear you, and just like, almost like there seems to be like sums for him build him. That's just basically gone because Mike literally comes around the corner with a gun and just shoots him down. It's like penny, like hands up, uh, tails up, da, 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 boom. And just yeah. like, he's shot down dead before then Mike Philip Gerard ends up twitching down. Also dying as this other part of him is apparently contested as he alludes that Bob is likely going to come back. 
It's very, very confusing and unclear. And anticlimactic. And anticlimactic. The words that Bob says while he while we hear a ringing, which you could do something with the idea of the ringing is already in there. Mm-hmm. The the electricity current. Yeah, yep. that sort of sound. There is something to that. I like that that's here. Yeah. But what he says is like, this is Bob, heads up, tails up, running to be with Scallywag. Night falls, <laughs> morning calls, catch you with my death bag. And then, you know, you may think I've gone insane, but I will kill again. And then Mike comes in. And it's just, I don't know how much to read into this. What I would say is the heads up, tails up seems to maybe connect with a line that Mike gives after Bob is shot, Mike's in that state of anguish clutching where his arm would be. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think it's to Truman spe- more specifically, do you have a nickel, right? Or spare me a nickel or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, maybe there's something with the coins, the heads up, tails up, Harvey Dent reality we're living in. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's like mysterious, but doesn't really feel that meaningful. Yeah. And like you said, it's anticlimactic because it's just, here's the killer. Welcome to my lair. I will kill again. And he's just gone. (laughs) He won't kill again. Or will he? Is he coming back? Because then Mike says, wait till it's your time. What? Before like, like as the candles about to be blow blown out, if you will, in a little distance. Like, I don't think, like, Truman even has had a chance to respond. He's just kind of there. He's kind of standing. He doesn't do anything And he's like, make a wish before... That's Cooper says that, yeah. Cooper Cooper does say that. And it's weird because, like, the the cans just go out on their own, and Cooper says the line before they go out. So if you believe that this is intentional and canon and not a dream, right, you would have to rationalize how Cooper knew the candles were going to go out. Whereas if it is a dream and it's operating in a dream logic, there could be the idea that like thematically and atmospherically, it's just a line you would say before the candles go out. It doesn't mean Cooper knew anything. And I would side with that, I guess. Oh yeah, uh, most definitely. But uh, the thing that I gotta say is that we gotta immediately jump cut to our podcast 25 years now, out of nowhere. Just like that whole situation just happened. And we're just gonna pop in 25 years later, straight into a fun specific uh, moment inside of our lives likely, because that's what the pilot does. I think it's a great way to pace things out, Khalil, to make things very fulfilling in the respects of like, we just literally cut to a new scene. It's a smash cut. And, and it's so hard because the Red Room is still visually striking. It's still so atmospherically strong. It is still very entrancing. But put in the context of the end of a movie after the anticlimactic death of this killer, it is baffling in a way that isn't as interesting because normally the Red Room is part of the clues to the mystery. It's another puzzle piece or set of puzzle pieces to an ongoing narrative. So you're not expected to look at this as the conclusion. You're meant to think, ooh, the birds sing a pretty song where I'm from. And there's the arms bending back. And there's that thing Laura does where she touches her nose. Maybe these mean something we'll see later. But because the show just ends right after that, because this would be the ending after that, it just feels like a bunch of gibberish tacked on at the end. And it's it's weird because the 25 years later on the screen, I don't think we ever see that during the episode two version of it. So it's never stated it's 25 years later, even though Cooper is aged up and you could infer roughly that amount of time has passed. So aside from this international pilot, the first time you would hear the 25 years later idea otherwise is the season two finale when Laura says, I'll see you in 25 years. Meanwhile... But then again, like in the respects of like trying to pick up for a sequel, trying to pick up for a series or anything like that, it's a 
fun decision to say that there's more of this sort of like tone coming around saying that, hey, there's like some very strange and interesting things coming along. And there's like some various missing pieces almost to say like, there's your ending. Mm -hmm. Also, if you want to see more. Yeah, again, I feel like the answer that I'm most content with right now and I could change is that I think that when they found out they had to do an ending, they did it begrudgingly and they gave it a conclusion that is almost purposefully anticlimactic and then put at the end more mysteries and more uncertainties to be like, fine, we'll give you an ending. We revealed a killer. Cool. But we're not going to answer all of these mysteries. So you better give us a show. You better continue so we can do more with this concept. Mm -hmm. And I think that that that's a smart ploy. I think it's a good tactic. However, if it failed, if this all Twin Peaks was, right, if this had been just this weird TV movie that aired in the 90s and never happened, never continued again, if this was the ending, it's it's almost indecipherable. (laughs) And the idea of 25 years later, my mind goes to, is it supposed to be Cooper's dead? Like, because if he's in this red room, right, we're not shown him sleeping before or after. We're not given any indication he's dreaming the red room. It still could be, but you'd have to just guess that. Mm -hmm. He could have walked into this place in reality. Like, this is just a place you can go to. But the fact that Laura Palmer is clearly there and everything feels so strange and unworldly, Mm -hmm. otherworldly, I should say, it doesn't seem like a place you could just, you know, you take a wrong turn looking for Walmart. You end up in this red room instead. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So the best guess I would have is that why cut to 25 years later? Oh, Cooper dies in 25 years. And this is some sort of like afterlife spiritual experience, Mm -hmm. which is obviously not the way I normally would read it in the show where it's framed as a dream. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, why else would it be 25 years later? You know, if there, <laughs> if there's supposed to be a reason. Mm-hmm. All I could think of is this is Cooper after he dies, which is, again, weird and interesting. If that's supposed to be the intent or not. I do want to point out, though, with the Red Room, we do have new context for the weird thing that's floating by in the shadows of the curtains that you at the time were saying it was the planet Saturn. Mm -hmm. And I had made the comment about like a UFO or a bird or something like that. Yeah. We got more for the UFO argument and for the Saturn argument by proxy. What do you think that was supposed to be? Saturn. Okay. Literally Saturn's on the table off to the side. Saturn is flying throughout the air. Our constellations are a theme that comes up later. I think for the most part, most evidence that usually plays around with UFOs and the ideas of UFOs comes so much later on that yes, that you could still make some extraterrestrial arguments, but I think that the biggest arguments come from things such as the secret history of Twin Peaks. So why Saturn? Why Saturn? To return to that question. I think I answered it in the podcast a while ago, and I didn't have my Saturn notes uh, prepared It was two and a half years ago, so I'm just asking what your thoughts are now. You looking up your old notes? Uh, My thoughts right now is that Saturn is right there. It's like, oh, I spoke about that before. I filed it away way back in my head. I never thought I'd return to this place. Well, you watched it. What did you think of it this time? I thought it was Saturn, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I probably said something nice about that. Uh. Yeah, I probably some, said something, I can't find the notes, but I probably said something cool about agriculture and the father of ops of Jupiter and his sixth order of the sun. And there was something cool about throwing in like the idea of like something to grow from, if you will, because progress or something like that. Do you that. still believe that? Sure. I, do you? I, I, I believe that there is, I believe that there's Saturn by the shape and again, the literal planet that's off to the side in this red room because there's so limited iconography located inside of here that I do think that everything in here is substantive enough that they're trying to play with certain ideas. However, 
them playing with those ideas and me knowing what those ideas mean, I think can still be in two separate camps, if you will. I haven't fully like interpreted and deciphered that mostly because I don't think I have enough pieces for that necessary puzzle. It's fun to pause it. It's fun to play with. But for the most part, when I saw that again, I was just very confident of my past self. You're confident being Saturn, but not so much confident in the agricultural interpretation you had before. Not necessarily the uh, agriculture thing, but I'm pretty sure that if you give me some time, I can most certainly uh, put out a great grand argument where I'm flailing my arms around conspiratorially. Okay, I'll give you two months. (laughs) And I will not remind you, if in a podcast episode two months from now, you unveil that argument, you win. If you don't mention it and don't bring it up and it never gets brought up again, you lose. What do you mean? What's the winning? What's losing? What do we gain? What do we lose? Do you have a nickel? (laughs) (laughs) Blow the candles out. I I do think that for my own sake, it's Saturn for atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's Saturn for communicating the idea that this is Mm otherworldly. It it is supernatural. It is outside of our realm. Uh, That is how I'm taking it. I mean, if you ever had to, like, put together something that's very clearly a planet floating in the background and not just some weird ball, Saturn is the most stylistically distinctive, Mm -hmm. if you will, of a planet off in the distance. So that might also be a reason of making sure that it's communicating space or the means of astrology in some shape or format with it just sort of, like, being present without it being like, oh, Orb, is that a baseball? I wonder if baseball is going to come into play. It's also the only planet in our solar system with a ring. Damn it! Is it? I don't know if other planets have rings that are just not as pronounced. It's like, I, I know It's about, the main one with a ring. Main, it's the only one ever seen with a ring and is ever interpreted with a ring. And anyone who ever says, hey, uh, tell us about Saturn's rings. It's the only type that we say that we got to put a ring if on If it's it. like Family Feud, planets with rings. I, I'm going to buzz immediately and then say Saturn and then pass to the other team. Because <laughs> I have no clue what other planets have rings. Laura Palmer, don't put on Saturn. I, I do think that is not intentional. I, again, I don't believe that I have that long-term ring knowledge, mm-hmm. but it is fun in hindsight. It is things, <laughs> there's a lot of happy accidents and things you can play around with that may have informed decisions they made later. Mm. 25 <laughs> years later, perhaps. So I wanted to make sure before we get into more of our like deep dive discussion topics, we highlight some of the weird things that we noticed because you and I jump back and forth, pausing this thing earlier, just finding oddities that may not be huge giant tangents in of themselves, but just more like, huh? So first one I want to highlight is that in an early scene in the pilot, when Truman is on the phone and there's that whole thing with Lucy saying, it's the brown, not the brown phone, it's the phone over there and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. We get all these phone directions. While Truman is on the phone at the police department talking to Pete at the time, we can see in the reflection of the glass (laughs) a bright red light. And it it drew my attention and I looked what it was and it's clearly the light of a headset. It's not a light of headset. It's a reflection of the red tape on a headset. You actually have right now on you a future variation of this headset. That was a Sony headset in which on yours is a light blue strip. But on that headset of that time, there was a bright red strip. Now, would you believe it? That headset was connected to a human skull. Oh, God. Yeah. You know what? That's that's the common home for headsets, you see. I think it looks like David Lynch. I think it looks like a face. With the caveat that it isn't very clear. It's from a side profile. Who's to say? But I think that it looks enough like David Lynch 
and the context of it's someone who is controlling presumably the camera work because it then has a panning shot later that goes around the Mm -hmm. area where Truman was, follows him over to Lucy's desk. So presumably the person whose reflection is there is the one controlling the camera pan. So if it's not David Lynch, it's someone else doing the camera work. (laughs) It's... Dave the camera. There might be some other cinematographers on on task, but it just looks like Lynch, which I just think is funny because it's in the remaster, like HD Blu-ray sets. It's very easy to see. It's very easy to see. As soon as you catch that red strip with your eyes, it is uh, very magnetic to just stare back at this person. It's hard not to see it. Yep. (laughs) So that's kind of fun, I think. Especially if you don't trust Gordon Cole. It's a human. Because Gordon Cole was there from the start. <laughs> it's a human boom mic. That, that's yeah. the biggest thing I take away from it, and I love it. Then we notice something, well, a couple things, with the Major Briggs sequence where it's him and his wife, and the wife goes to answer the phone with Sarah Palmer. How would you describe the object that is sitting in the kitchen on the counter in plain view? Well, before we get to that sort of point, I love the loving relationship where, like, she's just giving him a massage, sitting in a chair in the middle of the room. There's no table in front of them. He's just literally sitting in the middle of the room reading the paper as his wife massages him. Mm-hmm. That's very cute and coupley, but also very strange in the overall location and position. Regardless, though, as we pan around and we're moving across here, obviously, yourself and myself are just used to, like, looking at background details. But uh, one of the most notable things is, is that a toaster? Is that a sort of bit of fabric? Is that a toaster cozy? Is it a it, portable bag for a toaster? It looks like a toaster carrying bag it just looks on like, our counter. It's like a, it looks like cloth and it's vaguely toaster shaped. And not like metal though. It's just, or plastic. It looks like fabric and it has an image of a toaster on the middle of it, like in the front. So I think it's like indicating, please put your toaster here. Please insert your toaster. <laughs> insert your toaster. Um, I I don't know <laughs> the need. I don't know because usually toasters come in boxes and you never have to like carry it from place to place. If you do, you probably are moving and you put it back in the box. Maybe I'm just using toasters wrong and I'm just thinking to <laughs> myself like maybe I should try to keep like dust and other debris from like falling into said toaster. I feel like putting this I hot truly toaster. I need a cloth for the toaster. Like putting a hot toaster into a cloth bag is more of <laughs> no, a that, fire hazard. That's after you're done with it. Like oh. you put it into the bag. Oh, yeah. Unless like that is true. And again, it's more like a toaster co- uh, koozie, if you will. Is that brand name? It's the thing that you put around a can while you're going out on a hot summer day. I thought it was a cozy. It's cozy, cozy, cozy. Uh, regardless, you put a can into a nice little cozy koozie and you put your toaster into its toaster koozie. Mm-hmm. And instead of like keeping it sort of like cool, it keeps keeps it hot. It keeps your toaster hot. Nice. <laughs> nice and ready. Um, and then Betty goes to the phone and I, I, I've noticed this in past viewings, but it's, it remains to be remarked upon again that Betty goes to the phone and talks to Sarah while carrying scissors. And I think the reason this happened in my heart of hearts is because they were trying to instill early on this feeling of dread and unease and mystery. And you don't know these people yet. And because it's a murder mystery type storyline, everyone's suspicious. Everyone's got motives and angles. So I think Betty Briggs is holding a scissor ominously to instill the atmosphere of something is odd here. I don't think... It has any other reason than that, personally. It doesn't consistently become a part of Betty Briggs' character that she's always carrying scissors. (laughs) And it makes her seem way scarier than she ever is ever again. She's like the least assuming Twin Peaks character 
she's just a nice person who's not even there very often. It looks like something, if I had to believe in my heart of hearts, is something that she can play with her hands, if you will, while she's having a conversation, just mm-hmm. because that's just something of a comfort for her. Uh, but it's still very ominous when she holds the scissors close to the cord, if you will, snip, snip style, almost to almost like instead of hanging up, cut the cord completely off. I think it makes the shot more interesting that she is maneuvering and moving something. It's not just a shot of someone on the phone. Yeah. Because Sarah gets like the cigarettes that she chain smokes, right? Yeah. So I think having her have something in her hand does do something. smokes the scissors. Oh no, that's really, that's worse than running with them. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I, I did notice that when we paused it to talk about this, there are shots or moments in the shot, I should say, where Betty's hand with the scissors crosses over in front of the cord on the phone. Mm-hmm. So there is an idea that she's holding scissors close to a corded phone. The idea of cutting the cord, the idea of severing a connection, given all the stuff about electricity and communication in Twin Peaks, you could extrapolate some ideas there or a connection has been severed in the sense of a family connection between Laura and her mother, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's something you could argue with the scissors being related to the idea of cutting the cord. Mm -hmm. I just think she's got scissors because it's a a mood thing. It's a mood. Scissors is a mood. How would you describe the mood at the Great Northern when a certain group of Scandinavian people are leaving a certain lodge, motel, hotel, or inn? If I was a person of reason... Um, how I would sort of like react in the moment, I would see them kind of like take my job professionally and just sort of like think to myself like, well, things have gone awry, but overall this is still a very saddening day for this overall group. I'm sure my boss will tell me more about it and just go about my day because I've got other things to take care of. If I was a freaking crazy person, I'd be slamming on the front bell going, the Norwegians are leaving, the Norwegians are leaving, the Norwegians are leaving, and go again and again and again, shouting at the top of my lungs as they're actively in front of me, marching out, pretty upset. And honestly, honestly, with the staff members around here, I'm more offended by what they're doing more than I am of what anything Audrey does for her shenanigans. It's 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 one of those things that when you're first watching it, you're likely to tune out the background noise and focus on the moment of the Norwegians leaving and Audrey's you know giggling reaction. But when you just phase out the foreground and focus on the background, there is a stretch. I don't know, like two minutes. Let's just say I don't know how long the scene is. Maybe it it's feels, long. It if, feels at least two minutes. If right, it's shorter, just, it feels yeah, like two minutes. Where just in the background, the hotel like concierge lady is just dinging this bell, repeatedly saying the Norwegians are leaving, the Norwegians are leaving, my teeth are bleeding, my teeth are bleeding, my teeth are bleeding. And up to this point, she doesn't seem as unhinged as a small child from Dumbland. She simply seems like someone who's like doing her job, she's being responsible, she's doing her tasks, she's watching over Audrey, she's doing the normal thing. This is the most eccentric she is. And if we try to extrapolate any sort of meaning, it just sounds like she's in such a state of shock that she's just like stuck repeating it over and over again, which is uh, quite a reaction to have. And given the circumstances, I it's just funny when you think of the background implications. If this was real, why are you doing this lady? Is this protocol at the great Northern is the standard operating procedure? Well, uh, thank you very much, Khalil, for your overall stay. It was a pleasure having you around. I hope you're interested in future business uh, implications. And here you go. Have a nice day. Khalil is leaving! Khalil is leaving! Khalil is leaving! (laughs) Ding, 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 (laughs) ding! Just make sure everyone, you know, word gets around fast in a small town. You got to make sure it comes straight from your (laughs) mouth before rumors start happening. Uh, Also, 
strangely, when we're looking at the copy of Flesh World that comes out of Laura's safety deposit box. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I paused on to this. To read the text. To read the text, look at things, and also see some of the side images, uh, by the way. I gotta say, I'm surprised uh, Ronette looks so young for being 35. Yep. (laughs) If we're going with the text directly under her photo is supposed to be her... Everything else matches potentially but her age. I mean, if you're going to lie about your age, go for like 25, <laughs> not 35, but you know, hey, whatever. Clearly the most interesting thing onto this magazine because the other most interesting thing is probably the photo off in the corner, which seems to be, a, you know, a sex doll being advertised, like a nice little sex doll. It, was, it, it looks like sex doll. It's the picture to the bottom left. Mm-hmm. So you're imagining when you're looking at the paused frame, right? If you were to pan from, from the photo of Ronette down left, you would be looking at the sex doll. You'll see more sex doll. Quantifiably, there should be more sex doll there. Makes sense, right? Now, then it actually does pan down from the picture of Ronette down left, and you're like, okay, 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 to the truck with the man (laughs) there who's not not Leo, just the man. And mind you, I'm letting you know that, like, this man is not holding a sex doll. There's not a sex doll that's the size of a truck inside of this image. No, it pans from that one image to where the sex doll should be, and a truck has taken its place. The sex doll has turned into a truck, Cleo. I want you to explain this to me, because I feel like there is some sort of heavy intention behind this. You need to tell me, why does the truck... Why was the truck once a sex doll? Alchemy. At its base, <laughs> all, all materials, all materials can be equivalently exchanged. <laughs> Look, I didn't get that far into Full Metal Alchemist before I dropped Brotherhood, okay? So I don't know if at any point a sex doll and a truck become each other. It seems like, for the most part, one shot was to show the image, and the other one was to show a transition to Leo Johnson's household. And the thing is, is it got mixed up, and either A... It was something that if I were in charge, I would have this be exactly as it is because I find a moments like this, like this outright flaw in the editing to be very humorous. I think. Yes. If you actually catch it, it is very funny and has no reason. Elsewise, it's just something of like a oversight, if you will. Yeah. I, I like the former more than the latter. I'm, I'm guessing they just had two different copies of what this page would look like. And for whatever reason, they use different ones on different shots. It's and- a transition that's dealing with a magazine directly on. So there could be arguments to say in that point of post-production, they thought, you know what would be a cool transition going from yep. this scene to this scene? Let's try this. They just... If there would have been a way to have, like, maybe the page turn, or maybe it goes a different direction, or maybe it scrolls past the (laughs) sex doll and there's a truck there next to the sex doll. Do not appreciate the fact that a sex doll can become a truck. No, I I do appreciate. is possible. This means that you can follow your dreams, too. (laughs) You, too, can be the sex doll that turns into a truck. We believe in you. (laughs) I also believe that a Jeff can become a Mike. Yeah, this is another one of those funky points where we are to look at the subtitles and question to ourselves what's happening. So during a moment. So within the roadhouse inside the pilot itself, we have a few people sitting around before they notice both Bobby as well as Mike who begin to enter the bar, sit around and begin to sort of like wait about, look around, if you will, and be present inside this bar. The inciting incident that's supposed to be happening later is supposed to be a bar fight, if you will, because apparently like Mike and Bobby don't really have a nice reputation and they're going to be doing antics that are very scummy. So having that have an inciting incident of a bar fight comes up is notable, especially since these three individuals, teens, adults, it's hard to say, they're young people. But regardless, 
people. But they sort of turn and they look at him and they say to themselves, say, yeah, it's Jeff in the Mutt. And you and I were at first just like, Jeff in the Mutt? It's like, yeah, no, we're not even going to, we're not even going to look up his like, cookies, uh, dancing. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. It's probably just some far off reference or something like that. What's very notable is that when the person we know is Snake ends up dealing with Donna and there's more aggression being flung towards them and people start overall uh, getting into the sense of the brawl, there's a point where it's very clearly Snake talking, but the subtitle says, Jeff, no. Like, Jeff is saying no. It is yeah. Jeff colon no. In which, this is Jeff speaking, and we haven't heard anyone say Mike Inside this pilot. I'm, I'm like, we've, we've watched heard it. Snake, but not Mike. I'm just, I'm debating, like, do we miss it? Did someone say Mike at some point? But I don't know if they did. Maybe it's something that changed as they were getting into the show, because, again, this is a pilot. Maybe this is a point where there was a subtitle person, Lou Hamster style, heard that says, yeah, Mud and Jeff. Uh, that's and what I think happened. Jeff, that, that's where something that like that could happen. But Someone then again, subtitled that scene but didn't have the context of the casting. Which, two things with that. One, what were subtitles like and how were those formats going mm -hmm. in that time and age? Like, I imagine like when you're remastering or getting things settled, are you going as close to those potential live TV subtitles? Is there someone who handles subtitles in I those sense? Know. It's that funky little middle ground. But also, number two, uh, I'm looking at... The two of them, and I think that Bobby, it definitely is at least Mutt, if you will. Because Mutt implies, like, a lapdog, implies someone that might overall try to do things, but overall will cower, someone who's more bark than bite. He literally barks later mm -hmm. on, and he's the one that leads on the bark. Jeff is such a weird nickname, then. Jeff is such <laughs> a weird thing. Yeah, Jeff. Oh, yeah, you know what, that guy, he's such a Jeff. Yeah, no, like, oh, God, so, you know, I thought I, I thought the date was going well, but the guy, uh, Jeff. Look, people have weird nicknames sometimes. People call, you know, maybe, like, there's always those kids in high school where, like, they give them a name, and it's not their real name. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Where, like, there'll be some kid, and his name is Ryan, but for whatever reason, everyone calls him Jimmy. And that's just a joke. It could be bullying, or it could be sincerely friendly. That can happen. Do I believe that Mike Nelson is the kind of person people would make that joke about and feel safe doing so? He seems a little more threatening than that, and I don't know if that's the vibe I get. All of this is in the context of we see at the end credits no mention of the actor, Hershberger, nor do we see the character Mike pop up in there. And I'm assuming in the opening crawl, we didn't go back, but I'm assuming they show the actor's name there, but those opening credits don't say the role, usually, unless it's like an also starring situation. But it does say like someone like named Honeysuckle Honeydew, like yeah. the very important character, Honey Honey. Whatever the name was. <laughs> what, what, I think what it's it was. funnier we didn't write it down so you could, <laughs> you could struggle this way. But yes, it's, it's something where, like, it starts to ebb and flow, like, how much do we rely on these freaking subtitles? It is something that is almost exciting in that sort of, like, respect on, like, what do I do with this? But in any case, whether it is joking, gentle ribbing, or overall means taunting, I guess you're Jeff now. If it can be just a nickname, we can just throw out there. <laughs> Welcome, it's the Unplugged Professor and Jeff. <laughs> Next up, we have a series of discussion questions that I wrote up and wanted to run by you, Professor. Hmm. So, first off, the first person we see in the pilot... Is me. I was there. If you are played by Joan Chen... Yes. 
And you run the mill. Yes. And you murdered your husband. Allegedly. So Josie is looking in the reflection. I believe she's applying makeup, right? Why do you think David Lynch and maybe by proxy Mark Frost chose to open with Josie as the first person we see? It's overall the lighting, the style of it, as well as the overall turn is to very much run home the more soap opera-esque sort of feel. Because otherwise, if we go directly to the point of isolation, it is Pete going off to find a dead body, if you will. And then there's going to be longer scenes, if which will be people's interactions with such. I think that for the most part, if you had to put like the look of a soap opera on a wall, it would be Joan Chen at the mirror looking upon herself. So I, I, I think it's just more so introducing that this is going to be that genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the film studies 101 in me wants to say it's like, well, yes, I mean, it's reflections, duality, the self as seen versus the self as perceived in the soul. Also, you have the application of appearances, the application of makeup being the face that you wear to the public. All this is to say that, again, I know it sounds pretty basic, but <laughs> I do think it is fitting that a show that has so much to do with reflections and duality and so much to do with the appearances that people put on does open with literally an example of those things. Yes. So I do think that is fitting whether that was the intent or not. I would be curious to know whether that was always planned to be the opening. And not even necessarily always, but like, was that in the script before anything was shot, that that was going to be the first scene? Or was it a shot they particularly liked and David Lynch and company decided to put earlier on after looking at all the footage? I think that there's still enough to say, for example, I don't think that these characters are just because they've been written into the script. I do think that they have been placed onto paper, ideas of what they were inside their past, what they are. So I think that there is a heavy amount of argument that, again, if Josie wasn't fully planned out, at least the general concept of Josie and that sense of reflection and that sense of facade could be interpreted and placed, if you will, a very soap opera-like theme because it looks very soap opera-esque. It's the one of the most soap opera shots. Mm-hmm. Soap opera. And as far as Josie in the episode, she plays a fairly minimal role. We do have her at the end with Harry Truman setting up that plot line. And we do get some interactions between her and Catherine where on the day of the incident with Laura being found dead and Ronette being found in such a critical condition. Josie is the one to make the announcement that the mill will be closing for that day. Yeah. And Catherine immediately wants to fight this stand up against this. Who do you think if either character had the right position to take? Why do you think Josie wanted to shut down the mill? Do you think it was sincere care for the employees Or do you think there's other ulterior motives? I think that there's things going on in the background that we don't usually see, especially in the bided comment that Josie gives off to Catherine. Well, Catherine is like, Josie, you are not going to do this. Like, I'm the owner of the mill. I have full authority to do this. And honestly, I should have probably taken full authority like this a long time ago. I think that there's rising tensions between herself and Catherine that's already inside of the household in general, that by doing this action, it is in opposition of Catherine to make sure that Catherine knows a bit of her place, if you will, Mm -hmm. as Josie's trying to make sure that she's not being run over by Catherine or Catherine's not trying to overstep her bounds. There's also that odds and ends of looking 
good in the face of others for the sake of, hey, we're closing down the mill today or whatever. It's PR. It's a good PR sort of thing as well as give people a break. Not to mention just like the overall morale of the overall mill. I'm imagining Twin Peaks is a small town of between 5,000 and 51,000 individuals in which maybe that's like having that sort of like close association with multiple deaths, multiple injuries, multiple issues going on in town by just saying that we're going to settle today. It's just going to be less likely for workplace instances Mm -hmm. as opposed to what the access guide might attest to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think there's also an argument you could make that if it's Josie Wright that had killed Andrew Packard, even though the incident was a bit old, it was like a year old, I think they say in the pilot, there is the idea that Josie may not want law enforcement snooping around the mill area in case that she has matters she would rather have covered up. And there is the idea that potentially in shutting down the mill, it would give her more access to do things to prepare the environment. I I, I say that, but I'm a little hesitant in the sense that what would she specifically have to cover up? I don't know. And considering, again, there was that distance between the murder, I don't think it'd be related to that. It'd be other things that she's trying to cover up. And if anything, I would think at this moment in time, Catherine would be the one who probably has more shady things to cover up than particularly Josie. But there is that other ledger, so who knows? It's really up to a question of, like, how much is Josie physically involved with the mill? How much is Josie having to be physically there? Because her being able to be physically present more alongside with Truman, especially notable since Laura Palmer's body was found on the side of the river, and the fact that the boat exploded with, assumedly, her husband into the river, if there's any sort of, like, further investigations to go through. Because my counter-argument immediately, if there's anything physically in the mill to show that that was her fault because... I personally, I didn't think it would be in the mill. I think it'd be on a boat somewhere or anything mm-hmm. like that. Having people working and being in the way of police officers means that you could potentially distract against something. If she has to be there anyway, then she has to be there. I think that it's just the net positive nature of being a good PR move and also giving her more time to keep eyes out on things such as Truman, if you will, and mm-hmm. start to make her plays. I think that's more compelling in general. That's fair. That's fair. I, uh, I also want to share with the listeners the, the joke that I had made with you off pod that I think was pretty funny. Mm. So we get this situation where Catherine, in a huff after losing that battle of wills with Josie, approaches an employee, or basically she just kind of stops walking and looks at an employee who's looking back at her, and she asks what his name is, and he's like, Fred Truax? And she's <laughs> like, you're fired, just immediately just removes him. And but he's, uh, the tra- he's the true axe, the only axe. What you were taking down a person whose name is Axe in the lumber mill. Nothing will ever be the same, Catherine. This is your downfall. He is the true axe. I just thought it'd be funny to have a joke later they could have done where after the arson happens at the mill, after all that fallout happens and they're like looking into the possibility of there being arson as it's hinted at in other supplementary material, they were kind of wondering what if they ended up like going into Fred Truax's house with like a warrant and they Mm. find like he has incendiary devices. He's got, he's got means and methods. He has like manifestos of documents about how he's going to burn down the mill, (laughs) clear intent stated. And it's just that he gets the one to go to prison for it because he got beaten to the job by Leo and Ben. I like to believe that Fred Truax was on his vendetta mission and just got beaten to the punch. I live and die on the hill thinking about Catherine 
thinking about Catherine inside these regards and thinking about Catherine's actions here, including what she's done to overall Truax, this overall spiteful point of like making an action in which in the grand scheme of things won't do anything, but at the very least it gives her a semblance of power. I just continue to look at the sense of one of the first interactions that we re we see with Catherine, not just like being told off, uh, not told off, being told by her husband that he's going off to go fishing before he finds the overall dead body. Then immediately when we actually see her in an action-based role to be told down like, no, this is not going to happen. you like, I'm not giving you this, this power to potentially have the beginning of her being given off as this powerless being to uh, probably the most powerful individual by the end of the Twin Peaks series. It's just, it warms my heart in a thought, you know, that overall, it, it, it's, it's, it's a great progression of character, you know, that one day she will overcome her challenges and uh, her Lose adversaries everyone that will all be her. dead. For all her adversaries are dead. That's true, including the husband she might have had feelings still for. Might have. Maybe, possibly. Speaking of that husband, it is interesting to note that when Josie and Catherine are going back and forth about closing the mill or not, Pete's just kind of standing there, and Josie very specifically positions herself next to Pete. Yes. He doesn't say anything. He's not vocal at first about supporting her. She just kind of asserts herself next to Pete as though to say, I've even got your husband on my side. Yeah. And then eventually when it comes down to it, Pete you know, is like, Catherine, like, come on. Like, we need to do this and goes to what Josie wants. Whether because Pete agrees with Josie that it is the right thing to do or because Josie does have the authority, either way, he's like, Catherine, you need to stop. We're shutting it down. With the what seems to be tense nature between himself as well as Catherine, I mean, at this point, Josie most certainly has the high ground. She has the literal legal authority on her side to make sure that this doesn't happen. She has no one really inside of her overall camp to make sure that things are secure. She's basically on her own on this mm -hmm. regard. And at this point, Josie is making it very clear that this is the case if there's ever a way to twist a knife into Catherine's side it was directly upon that day and sadly true acts had to suffer the consequences and, and it makes sense then why later into season two Catherine would use her power to force Josie into basically being a maid yes because how embarrassing for someone who previously got so much authority over her to now have to be her servant mm -hmm. there there's a certain rubbing it in her face sort of vibe to Absolutely. Catherine that I can see why I can see why you like it what do you think of now that you know Leland's the killer and Sarah Palmer is in the environment she's in? Mm -hmm. What do you make of their reactions to Laura's death? Well, this is the big part with Leland, I would have to say, is that when we regard Leland's reactions, like Sarah Palmer is actively calling Leland and Leland is trying to calm her down, being like, it's okay, don't worry. Everything's fine. We're working through this. He's reserved. He's focused and so on. And between all of the reactions, especially in the most vulnerable states, we've seen Leland being heavily emotional and being able to fall into the emotions. I don't think everything is all a facade whenever it comes mm -hmm. down to that. I genuinely do think that Leland, at the very least, either by coping mechanisms or by mystical lodge spirit Bob, is unable to grasp what's going on until he finally is told in which everything sort of then flushes out of him out of a sh sheer dread misery mm -hmm. and i do believe in light ways knowing so what do happened. you so you don't think leland knew that laura was dead until the police officers arrived i think that the full knowledge of such hits him so hard because if he did if he did know he's put it way back in the crevices mm -hmm. of his mind repressed it exactly 
So Bob. the part of Leland that again, if we if we do differentiate Leland and Bob as separate entities, yes. Do you think that separate part of Leland suspects, has doubts, worries that Bob or something like Bob exists? Like, do you think there's any part of Leland as Leland that wonders what is going on with Bob? I think so, but the biggest evidence I have is the train car scene inside of Fire Walk With Me, where the conflict between Bob as well as Leland is most apparent as both personalities are most separate, if you mm -hmm. will. They are shown in their most pure form of like, I, I didn't think it was me, I think no it was me. It was one of those like, points of conflict that are most barren to Leland then. You're which, referring uh, to, again, the dialogue where Leland says something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, like, I knew you might have thought it was me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you knew it was me. Something mm -hmm. like that, right? Yes. In Fire Walk With Me? Yes. Okay. Yes. And to assume with it, Fire Walk With Me is the thing that happens before the pilot chronologically in the realm yeah. of Twin Peaks. What about Sarah Palmer's reaction then? Sarah Palmer's reaction, caught, mysterious, flung across an overall couch, revisiting overall thoughts as strange noises happen in the background. As she's sort of like slugged over the couches, one can only think to themselves, like especially with how much more energy she has when Leland isn't home as mm -hmm. first with when she is with when Leland's home and the context of being drugged happens. Like how much of it is the physical drugging mixed with these overall visions that it seems right. the Palmer ha family has and how much of it is <laughs> just Leland's antics. Well, I, I guess I, what I think is kind of interesting too is that Sarah Palmer very quickly jumps to the assumption that's, that uh, Laura was dead. Mm -hmm. Because over the phone, she doesn't hear the confirmation of that's what's going on. She just hears silence from Leland. She can tell that death is around the corner, whether or not you t put it as intuition or mysticality. As we've seen at a point in the series where she sees a pale horse inside the room. Genuinely, I do think that Sarah Palmer is shown multiple times mm -hmm. throughout the series of having a connection to the mystical or at the very least those sort of insights that are reinterpreted mystically. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think we'd agree less mystically, James and Donna appear very quick to also understand Laura's death in the sense that when Laura's not there at school and there seems to be this sort of atmosphere going on, they look at each other with a sort of concern. And by the time you get the screaming girl running across the school property, it seems like they very quickly pick up on the idea that Laura has died. Do you think that they saw it coming? I don't know if they saw it coming per se, especially with how somewhat flirty they behaved in the overall hallway alongside with like meeting up with blocker neighbors, Audrey, as well as Donna. Mm -hmm. But I do genuinely think that as soon as the possibility sort of like dawns on them with the police officer coming around, this person disappearing, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, it hits really hard. What I would like to mark most notably though is the... Real, the overall world around them, how it affects them after Laura's death, because Donna is surrounded by, I don't know if it's friends, acquaintances, or just simply classmates, but people who knew that she was close to Laura mm -hmm. are all surrounding Donna. However, James, who for one is the hidden boyfriend, but also two, just generally a very loner figure, is sitting off alone with just a sort of like a strange look on his face, but what could be read as dread. 
Mm-hmm. And not to mention, this actually does get mirrored later on as well. Maybe not inside this classroom sense, but maybe just James being a distant soul as he passes by Ed and Ed just is apologizing for what happens and overall is just like checking in with him. But it's very like light conversation before James gives him a note and James drives away. And when Donna comes around to see Ed, uh, Ed just gives him her a big old hug and sure, he delivers it, and it's like, I'm so sorry. Almost like speed running. Very flat delivery. I, I think that's just more so the actor trying to fit into the shoes, if you will, more than I am this is the character feeling. Because it's hard Jenny, to say. It's hard to say. Because we see the actor open up more as the show continues. We do. But his delivery of these lines is generally pretty flat. Mm-hmm. The most we see him emote is with Norma, and there's not much of that to really see a comparison point. Like, he has only a few words with her, really, in this episode. Mm-hmm. But even though he's pretty muted to both James and Donna, I do agree there's a different tone in that he's not really embracing and even saying the I'm so sorry type of attitude to James. James literally says to Ed that she was the one, and Ed doesn't really respond to that. Yeah. And that's kind of wild considering Ed has been obsessed, or maybe not obsessed, he's been preoccupied, um, fixated on the idea of the one who got away with Norma for decades. So with the idea that James just lost this person he was in love with, his high school sweetheart kind of idea, the fact that Ed doesn't seem to open up one in that moment, but also two ever that we see Mm -hmm. in the course of the events of the series and the weeks that would follow in the timeline. It's, it's very interesting to me that there was an opening for Ed to be a supportive figure for James, and I don't think Ed took that. I don't think Ed took that, but on the same token, like, just because there is a through line, to say that that is going to be a lead-in for support, I think, is something that we commonly see with these overall tropes. But on the same token, take Ed having that and having lost that. Maybe the muted tone is just because he himself is still trying to deal with it himself. He's not yeah, a I think reliable he's too figure. Into his own problems to really help James with his. Yeah, that it, which I think is hard because not to put too much moral judgment on him, but I do think that makes him by just kind of a distanced observation a ill-fitting father figure in this moment for him, for mm. James. Can Ed help it? I don't know, but I'm just saying that what James needs right now, I don't think Ed is providing. Mm-hmm. Is that I, is that fair to say? I don't think that he's able to provide it with the current emotional states going on, and I don't know if James even has any sort of like outlets for himself. We see him sort of like sit and look off into the distance himself, just trying to let everything settle for himself, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Donna's inside the background just trying to defend James to make sure that he's not caught up inside of all this. Before, of course, we get the super um, kind of uncomfortable overall kissy moment later on when they're confiding in one another. Do you still find it uncomfortable? Very. And do you want to explain your reasons? For the most part, it's just trying to deal with grief and sadness and trauma by coming close and using this relationship as that sort of like bridging point. Mm -hmm. I understand whenever it comes to having a support network, being able to speak, confide in people and Mm -hmm. be able to bear emotions. But I think it's so muddled with their overall feelings for one another that since there's no other outlets available to them, it's just bound to 
caused more issue, mm-hmm. especially with the freshness of the death, especially with the, I imagine, acknowledgement of their lives with one another also connected to Laura. Mm-hmm. It's just going to end up messy. And, yeah. and, and, and in that respect, it makes for good TV. It makes for good soap opera. But on the same time, like it doesn't stop. A needle still pricks pretty Does hard. Does it feel real to you? As real as any other chaotic instance in this overall world, it's not something that seems unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I find ideal, but do I think that it could happen? Yeah. There's so many love affairs in this show, and like so many of them are in the pilot, that it's just, it's almost comical. Mm. Just how many characters, there's, there's very few characters we see in the pilot who don't have some sort of romantic like affair going on, it seems. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of even by soap opera standards, a lot to take in at once. (laughs) I don't know what the premieres of most soap operas look like if they throw at you five affairs in one, like, hour. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's standard procedure. Usually you think, like, they would slowly develop, but we jump in, they're already existing. So the James and Donna one is an interesting one where they hadn't been together prior, but they already had feelings that in this moment of shared vulnerability were kind of delved into in a way that might have helped them distract themselves or sublimate their grief with the person who is best able to understand them in that moment. But I think it's almost more understandable for James than not, not justified, not healthy, but more, maybe more understandable for James in the, you've kind of given a portrait of James not having any outlets, mm-hmm. not having many people. The one person James might be able to talk to about this is Donna. Mm-hmm. So for him to latch on very emotionally to that person, um, I can see how that would blur the lines with romance. Whereas Donna does have more outlets and more of a stable structure. Mm-hmm. I, I do find how quickly she leaps into James's arms to be a bit different. But then you can take the ideas from the Laura Palmer diary that Donna was always living in Laura's shadow. So whether there's like a conscious or maybe more likely subconscious drive it makes sense that Donna would turn to the person that Laura turned to and follow in Laura's footsteps so much so as to now go with James. Hmm. Would, no. you, would you say so? I would say that that's most certainly a possibility. It's something in which, like, as far as the reading goes, it's so thin at the moment yeah. that there's not much that I have for a reading without feeling that I've stretched a little bit too far myself. Did I stretch it? No, I don't think you did. I think that you did the best thing close to it. Just a light pull. Just a light pull. A little Laffy Taffy pull. <laughs> One Taffy still intact, just kind of thin. <laughs> what about Bobby? What do you think of Bobby's reactions? Because I think Bobby is one of those characters we see totally different lights of throughout the series. Bobby is someone who is a fireball of emotions. As soon as you light his fuse, he's going to be all over the place. And even then, he still comes off with his overall pretty design as he seems pretty flashy himself, especially when he's talking to his fellow schoolmates and he has these fun, small interactions. But as soon as he is shown that he's going to be convicted to be a criminal, as soon as he sees Leo's truck off in the distance while he's hanging out with his wife, Mm -hmm. as soon as he gets thrown into a prison cell, Bobby is someone that will will blow up, lash out, and do whatever he can to make sure that he himself has a presence. And this is a little bit before, of course, that we see him contested with much more powerful individuals. But inside of his overall pond, he tries his best to be a big fish. I feel like the 
writing for Bobby in the pilot was a lot more stereotypically the bad boy, bad teenager character. Mm -hmm. Whereas as the show would go on, I feel like he became a lot more nuanced and sincere. Mm -hmm. So like there's a scene later on where we see Bobby confiding to Dr. Jacoby and confessing kind of how Laura would push things on him. And Bobby's crying in front of Jacoby. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Bobby matches up one-to-one what we get in the pilot. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting when you try to square it away because if I try to graft onto the pilot, the Bobby that I know from other things, it might be that his reaction to Laura Palmer's death isn't necessarily the normal kind of denial, the stereotypical kind of denial, but more of denial fueling into incredulity in the Mm -hmm. sense that he is so dumbfounded about what happened that rather than face his actual sadness over Laura die, rather than let himself be consumed by the emotions that seem to be very real. If we go by the diary, especially that he genuinely loved Laura rather than face those things he instead kind of like turns aggressive against the people around him mm-hmm. and lashes out and mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of this braggadocious attitude of like, she loved me and I loved her. Whereas he would have fully known well, again, if we're taking everything into consideration, he would have fully known that Laura didn't love him. Not the way he loved her. He had kind of made peace with that by the time we read the diary, right? Yes. So when he's over here claiming that she loved me and I loved her. It's this showmanship. It's this this show that he puts on for everyone else around him. Mm-hmm. I think you can rationalize that as not being his true face, mm-hmm. that we don't see the true feelings of Bobby in almost any part of this episode. That's the best I can do to defend <laughs> the fact that Bobby feels so differently written. Mm-hmm. Uh, one scene that I, I think was really especially interesting is when he is done being questioned and we see Major Briggs and Betty Briggs there to pick him up. Garland Briggs says that he'll be home this evening and he says to Bobby, he'll be there if he needs a sympathetic ear. And so for the Briggs perspective, if we again go with the secret history, that's leaving listening post alpha. And I get the sense that based on the way Briggs writes about being distanced from his son, I get the sense that Briggs is not away from work at home in the evening after school very often. I'm going to guess that he is very estranged from Bobby and he doesn't see his son very much. Mm -hmm. So it shows how much Briggs does value and recognize this moment as he needs to stop even his most important work at listening post alpha. He needs to take a break from that to go be with his son and try to comfort him in this moment, even if it's just to listen. Mm -hmm. He isn't pretending to have the answer or the solution or make everything better, but just to be an ear. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, what is Garland Briggs if not someone who listens, right? Listening (laughs) post-alpha. He's looking at the signals. He's reading the signals. He's finding, he's always receiving information. Anyway, then you have Bobby's response where he, again, kind of lashing out, says, I don't need any damn sympathetic anything, and then leaves. And Garland Briggs' response to that, you know, is he doesn't know what's gotten into this kid, blah, blah, blah. And I think when first viewing it again, it just reads as Bobby's the jerk teenager and Garland Briggs is trying to be the supportive father, maybe a little over trying to do it in some ways, yeah. as we'll see in the next early episodes. But I think when you look at the lens of what we know of Bobby later, he's lashing out against everyone in this moment due to his pain. 
And I also think that if he doesn't see his father very much, if he isn't consistently around his father and he doesn't normally open up to his father or really confide in him, why would he do that now? Because I can see in Bobby's brain going, you're always too busy for me. You're always at work and focused on your government job. Mm -hmm. Why should I care now that all of a sudden you want to be this sympathetic ear? Mm -hmm. Screw you. And Mm -hmm. I can see that Bobby, at least what I imagine Bobby's perspective to be. Mm -hmm. So this is just one of those exchanges that I think gets improved by the other material we get from particularly the secret diary and the secret history on their personalities. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, and it pays off so well later when we get moments like Garland Briggs sharing his vision for Bobby's future and that they get a chance to actually listen on equal terms mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. as people. So I, I, I think that this really works when it might have just started as Bobby filling out the trope. Oh, yes. Of screw you, I don't care, dad. But there's more to it. Not to mention, I think that's using this as like the jumping off point for the characters and seeing where they end up. Again, I still thoroughly believe that with the idea that Bobby having the most growth, having the most acceptance, and also having the most healthy sort of like path, as well as Garland Briggs, uh, though he mostly had a rough time in the interim and sadly got drugged through Mm. uh, thanks to the chaos that was running around him and especially considering his past work, still... I believe that the dream can... I, I have no doubts that such dreams can be attained with him. I have no mm-hmm. doubt that Garland has had to get some growing done himself thanks to his overall line of work and even having to pass things on to Cooper in those regards. There's a lot to these characters that I'm almost curious on. If you ever wanted to do a chart for yourself on which characters do have statistically the most to their growth, I I, I think Bobby as well as Briggs could be fairly up there. And Ben Horn. I would add Ben Horn to that list if you take his changes in season two to be genuine. I think that for the most part, Ben Horn is where the ifs are capitalized. I don't know how many ifs I can put for Briggs or Bobby. I'm that's, pretty confident That's fair. That. that is really fair. I mean, Bobby isn't like a, a clean, like, trajectory. He does dip a bit. He does, like, have that weird Audrey thing where he works with Ben, and you can tell he's not being truly honest with himself. Yeah. And honest people around him. But he does move from that and grow from that. And I think I've asked you this before, but mm. going into the return, if Bobby is in the return, I know that David Lynch is going to write it the way David Lynch is going to write it. Yep. Do you foresee... Bobby having achieved Major Briggs's vision. Yes. Okay. No, genuinely, I do think yes, because he is now around individuals that are supportive. He is, though he still has his ways of being a little bit conniving and a little bit of trying to like pers- push certain systems. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit too confident on himself. That on its own in isolation is not much of a hindrance as opposed to literally having to fall into the drug dealing lines of the world around him. Or, say, for example, Shelly's trappings inside of her home. Mm-hmm. And having that sort of, like, openness to those lifestyles, being able to push for that bliss, I don't see them falling into the same cracks and trying to push their own status quos thanks to, say, for example, the lives of the parents before them. I don't mm-hmm. think Briggs would want to do that to Bobby. And then there's our favorite Dr. Lawrence Jacoby. The, specifically our favorite... Of the Dr. Lawrence Jacobis that we know, not that he is our favorite in any other regard other than being amongst the top-ranking Lawrence Jacobis out there how, how that well, are also doctors. How well does Jacobi's reaction to Laura's death in this pilot 
fit your idea of this character? For one, I'm already looking at someone like Lawrence Jacoby, and I look at him, and the thing is that he's got these big old earplugs inside of his ears, right? Right. So already seeing the earplugs and no glasses makes me feel like there was a point where they were trying to think of a gimmick for this guy, had the earplugs, but then maybe down the writing line was thinking to themselves, ah, we don't want him to keep saying what or anything like that. Why don't we just try something new of a spin? I feel like having that overall big style change mm -hmm. is notable enough. That's where I think that... Well you, you know, just to keep in mind because his famous overall glasses and how he sees out of those glasses and how he doesn't wear those glasses sure. at the time. Well, it's weird because it reminds me, when I think of the earplugs, it reminds me way more of Gordon Cole, right? The idea of, like, the impaired hearing because some, something being in the ear, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So, like, I don't know if it was something that as they were building Gordon Cole's character, they wanted to save for him or maybe that the... Glasses came up as an idea and they didn't want to do both because that'd be just too much. <laughs> and then they ended up using it with Gordon Cole later. Mm -hmm. But it's it's similar enough of a gimmick that I'm curious if the reasons were similar. Because Gordon Cole and Jacoby, at least on the surface in the TV series, aren't that similar mm -hmm. in personality or demeanor. And, you know, you've had your suspicions of Gordon Cole for a while now, and we've had our suspicions of Jacoby as well. But with Jacoby, it's a lot more on the surface of, like, why we have suspicions. This man is super suspicious, especially mm -hmm. early on. Yes. And he has definitely done these clearly bad things. But his idea with the glasses was to view the world in a sort of balanced way, even if the results in, like, person, I think you and I would agree that Jacoby doesn't seem to be a very balanced individual or, like, even necessarily wiser for what he's doing. No, especially inside the pilot. Like, for one, he makes it very clear while he's rubbing the overall, like, hula skirt that he's done things with Laura that the parents don't know that he's done things about Laura. Straight to law and officials, which, by the way, like, that's extremely, like, some form of suspicious that, sure, maybe it is a way to be like, hey, don't tell me, but I think that it puts him more at a potential risk. Yeah, it seems like he lacks self-awareness because it the way I read it is that he's trying to laughingly, subtly mention to the officers, hey, please don't tell Laura's mom or dad that she was seeing me. But it comes across as like super awkward and uncomfortable. And it just seems like a nervous laugh. So it, it doesn't play out the way I think he might be intending it to. Yes, he's filled with some form of either oversight or very pushed confidence, and I almost lean towards the former on this form of proto-Jacoby, mostly because in the scene that we get in the international pilot, where we're seeing, like, the one-armed man walking out of the elevator, you can see Dr. Jacoby off in distance talking to a few nurses about, like, this overall talking fish that's super suspicious, but most notably, he has both his plugs inside of his ears. I'm pretty sure that was in the original pilot, too. Oh, I, I don't recall that, like... He him talking to them off in the distance. Maybe they cut out the one-armed man in that instance, and for some reason that's where he was in the elevator okay. because that was one of the instances that sort of like connects like the right. I could have sworn here. that was in both versions, mm. but I don't remember. But perhaps it is. Regardless, two plugs inside of his ears, carrying a conversation, which is probably the worst way to do so because as soon as he gets to the law officials, he takes one out to better hear them after like mixing up one of the words. I, I think the like the immediate read I would have is if someone has their ears plugged when they're giving a conversation, they don't care what the other person says. Mm -hmm. They're not listening. Mm -hmm. It's someone who wants to talk and not listen back. And when your job is psychologist, listening seems a bit important. Mm. I'm, I'm a little bit stuck because with Bobby, I can go back and I can reconcile 
the different writing as potentially being Bobby's reaction to Laura's death and kind of avoiding the pain Mm -hmm. by putting on this act and blowing up and everything. And I'm willing to go with that for Bobby Mm -hmm. with Jacoby. I don't know if I'm able to square it away fully. It doesn't feel like the same character almost. Yeah. Part of it is the visuals, like you said, without the glasses, but just his character traits here, he's so much more suspicious in the way he acts that it feels like a red herring. (laughs) Like it it very much feels like maybe they were going to lead into him being a much more shady character Mm -hmm. and they didn't. Because by no means is he squeaky clean, but when we see him in the eventual show, he has a more professional demeanor. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't have this awkward laugh shtick with clear sexual innuendos. And I've speculated before, like, are we supposed to, after the secret history, are we supposed to consider those innuendos to be much more than just innuendos? Did he actually do anything inappropriate sexually with Laura? I think the pilot suggests he did. But I think everything afterward kind of slowly steps away from that, more and more away from it as time goes on. I think that if we can't trust the Robert Jacoby, who is more confidential and more serious inside of his own matters, that he is willing to publish everyone's personal records into things such as access guides as well as newspapers. Like, who is the Jacoby we should trust here? I don't trust the pilot Jacoby. I go for the one that throws my information out everywhere. You mentioned Robert Jacoby. Did you mean Lawrence? Lawrence, yes. Yeah, because Robert's the brother. Definitely that one. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we we don't ever get it fully resolved within the scope of the show. But the regular pilot, not the international, the regular pilot I believe ends with the gloved hand grabbing the other half of that heart that mm-hmm. James and Donna had buried. Yes. We don't see that in the international, but just to bring that up for a moment, that's implied to be Jacoby based on the fact that he later has it, right? Yeah. I believe that if I'm not mistaken, if I'm remembering everything correctly, he has that half of the necklace. Cause with Laura him would have had the other hand. half. You would think you would think unless she gave it to Jacoby and then she didn't have it. In which case, who's the gloved hand? Me. So this is what I mean though, is that it's either Jacoby or we never learned whose gloved hand grabbed the half of the heart. Or cannot recall. There's a lot of episodes in between, and we went through a lot of I'm pretty sure we don't know that person, because there's just this strange number of mysteries of seasons one and season two. Yeah. Where we never know for sure. We can only infer, like, mm-hmm. who was the person who knocked out Jacoby that sent him <laughs> to the hospital? Mm-hmm. Could be Leland. We don't know. Who was the person who was standing like shadily around in the darkness with Ben that one night? We don't know (laughs) for sure. There's just these strange things that it's unclear. And like Josie's been known to appear with disguise and masks to shoot Cooper. But do we believe that Josie's the one doing these things? Why would Josie knock Dr. Jacoby out? So it is, it is very unclear. And I, and I just, I think the necklace thing again is very strange because if it is Jacoby, that means he would have been tailing Donna and James that night. Why? I mean, the best case scenario I can imagine is that Jacoby, as he says later, you know, would be investigating this case in his own ways. Maybe when he found out Laura died, he legitimately was suspicious that Donna and James might have something to do with it. Yeah. And he was pursuing James for the same reason the law enforcement were. I don't know. But then he, what he found then, instead of, you know, really confronting James and Donna, he waits till they're gone, grabs the half of a necklace, and then puts it in his coconut and cries over it. So <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the investigation, if that's the case. Good job, Jacoby. I just think it's interesting to look back on, and I don't know if we get an answer to what was going on with that half of a necklace. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of like a dropped little plot element. 
I feel like it's just a mystery that sort of like gets thrown off into the wind, and I do think that there is a difference thanks to the just the general feel of Twin Peaks with its various sort of plots going off on all over the place, but still the main plot is trudging along. Not all mysteries necessarily need answers. It's just whether or not are they compelling enough to reach their conclusion. As far as a narrative goes. Yeah, it's it's about being compelling, whether it's leaving it a mystery or giving it an answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the half a necklace plot line ends up compelling. Fair. By the end of it. Fair. At first it's intriguing, for sure. Speaking of things being pulled out, the what? pencil being pulled out of the styrofoam oh. cup. Not that. Get your mind out of the gutter. I'm trying, but unfortunately I can't get my mind out of the Jacoby. Anyway, what's happening with the so, overall pencil so, uh, inside uh, the Great Northern Hotel? Audrey's first appearances in this pilot are kind of strange. She definitely is different than the rest of the show in that the pilot is the most comedic we ever see Audrey. A lot of the music in the background and kind of playfulness with her character reads as comic relief character where we don't get that with Audrey later at all, or very rarely, I should say. She's rarely the source of the humor directly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas she's very mischievous in this pilot. And when she's interacting with one of the other employees there, she is messing with this styrofoam cup that has liquid in it mm-hmm. and she pokes it with the pencil and she purposefully lets loose this pencil from the styrofoam, which releases all the water under the documents mm-hmm. and coffee, coffee. Thank you. I don't know why I thought it was water. Coffee is always in coffee is much worse. Coffee is much worse. You can't get rid of the coffee stain. <laughs> and you know, in my mind, it's always read as Audrey's personality is that she's a just a general troublemaker gets what she wants, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then B kind of the next deep layer would be that she looks for this sort of attention and control. And I think that there's a sort of general disinterest or dislike or disdain she has for her father and his company that there's a sort of combativeness in her. But then now I'm looking at the scene. I think you can add another layer to it, which I'm not fully committed to because, again, I think it's more of a fun thing to experiment with rather than to put all your eggs in the basket. Mm -hmm. But the line, what would happen if I pull this out, kind of takes on a more of a metaphorical meaning or could in the sense that I think you could look at the death of Laura Palmer and this incident that is consuming the entire town and Mm -hmm. is the focus of the entire pilot is very like the pencil being taken out of the cup mm-hmm. in the sense that all of these emotions, all of these unstated secrets, hidden truths, all of these things that have been welled up are now being suddenly released and causing this giant mess all over everything. Mm-hmm. And it cannot be reversed and it will cause damage. I do think you can read that into it. Not that Audrey is next level meaning that, but more so that maybe it's being included as a nod to that idea. I think that I do agree with the nod to the idea, and I do lean a bit into that because whether it's Laura Palmer or just generally items inside Twin Peaks, you can take a cup, which is a structured reality, something that is familiar and something doing its job. It overall is containing all that is. Whatever you believe it, it does contain as the larger metaphor. It's the one inciting incident of as soon as you push the pencil, like mm-hmm. inside of it, there's only going to be two outcomes that are going to come from this. Either mm-hmm. like you got to get everything out of there uh, one way or another, or if you're going to keep everything in, if the pencil removes it and this overall outside force of the pencil removes it, everything's going to become 
tumbling out yeah. of guilt and it's going to destroy in a way all this sort of structure you have in this case official documents on the desk in which this case like this person's bad at their job like they yell at their guests as they're leaving as they pound <laughs> the bell she sees like audrey sitting next to her like stabbing yeah. into the coffee and like continues to keep all every paper like scattered across the desk this person is bad at their job we have a campaign against her at the moment. <laughs> Fire her. Um, Fire. Walk out with her. And there's, there's, you know, you could say it's stretching to, to do this whole metaphor thing with it. I just think it's more fun if you do. Mm. I, I, I treat it as fun. I don't think it's the intention of the writers, and I don't think it's the motivation that Audrey has. I just think it's a fun other layer to explore. Then you have the idea as well, if you read names into things, mm -hmm. that the worker who are trying to fire right now, she does reply to someone else, okay, Bob. And then Audrey starts mocking her, okay, Bob. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bob. Okay, and Bob. considering that Bob is the name given to the killer mm. in this ending, mm. <laughs> the name Bob had already been on their minds. Like, it's not just a coincidence with Bob later. Bob was already a thing in the international pilot so it's, why would you use the name Bob with that? And then also Bobby, that's three individuals with that name. It's kind of weird. I think it's the same sort of like philosophy. There might be some greater reason, but I think in truth, it's the greater philosophy of throw off people and make sure that they're paying attention, such as with Jay. Mm -hmm. In this case, there's Jays everywhere. There's Jays that could be connected. This can bring larger conversations, if you will. You just got to pay attention to know which one we're at at this very moment. Sure. So, it's a fun little tactic that can be either hit or miss. In this case, uh, for the Bob, I'm kind of in between. Meanwhile, Jay, I think, is a hit. Jay's a hit, for sure. For sure. One question I have about Donna is that when she's talking to James, Donna mentions that she really did know Laura because James is saying that Laura was into things that Donna wouldn't have known. And then Donna says that she knew Laura better than Laura realized in the sense that when it comes to Laura, Donna knew her better than Laura had previously thought. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with Donna? Do you think she really did know Laura better than Laura realized? I think that it's the first emotional thought one will keep in mind and think about and mull over when it comes to an exciting incident, I think that the more compelling items and just being able to analyze Laura in the later episodes, especially as we continue to progress in Twin Peaks, become more and more likely. This just seems like a quick through line to make sure that there is a closer connection to Laura communicated or at least assumed with her as she continues to almost like dissolve herself into her shadow until eventually like she even just becomes... It gets closer with James. I think that the tough questions that she has in front of the graveyard when it comes to concerning her with the shadow is just also is to reflect on this instance, if you will, believing that she continues to know her more and more and more and better until like certain things are realized. It's, it's a muddled moment, to say the least, with Donna as she's trying to cope with loss, I think. Maybe I'm sleepy, but... In this, I wasn't quite sure if you said yes or no. <laughs> Do you think Donna's right? I don't. I think Donna thinks that Donna's right in this moment. I don't know if it's going to continue going on. Do you think she is right? I don't know. 
Okay, because you have the diary and Fire Walk With Me is probably the main sources of evidence. I do, but those are also very focused, biased takes. And having I mean, the diary do- is having- written by Laura, but the movie's not a biased take. That's- it's a, I still think it's a biased take going along and kind of leaning more onto Laura's perspective, just because for the most part, whenever we see Donna and overall insights with Donna, she's so aloof inside the moment. She's trying her best to kind of like catch up with Laura at times. There's not much conflict that happens between Laura and Donna outside from Laura trying to clean up things with Donna and Laura lashing out at Donna. This is very much Laura Palmer's movie, not Laura Palmer and Donna's journey. So I don't get much Donna perspective to compare to Laura's insight. I just have, at this time, with the pilot, a teenager that's making assumptions as she is emotionally vulnerable to someone who's close to Laura Palmer. I feel like it really does matter, though, in the sense of their characters, and especially for Donna's character, how aware you think Donna really was. Yeah. And I guess I've always operated throughout this podcast, especially during the book and movie talks, that I don't know if Donna really understood Laura, and I tend to take Laura at her word when she says as much Mm. that... Donna was a bit naive when it came to these certain things mm-hmm. and didn't understand fully well. For example, like there's that conversation where Donna in the diary is sharing to Laura that her and Mike are taking their relationship to more of a next level to a physical level. Mm-hmm. And Laura's listening to this and she's like, huh, how cute. Like Laura is so already into the realms of sexuality that mm-hmm. what Donna's sharing to her doesn't feel that meaningful or significant. Mm-hmm. It feels like baby steps to Laura when she's already dove into the pool. Mm-hmm. So that's the question is, did Donna know how deep into the pool Laura was with sex, with drugs, mm-hmm. and I think even more pertinent, pertinently with her psychological states? Mm-hmm. Because we know that Donna knows about the drugs and sex to the extent that she was there that night around the time of Laura's death, like the night before, I think that would be, or, you know, one of the days before when they were at the, you know, the pink room area, when Laura was the one taking Donna out to like save her from what's going on. Yeah. We know that Donna was there pushing and pushing at that moment. So she has to know somewhat what Laura's into. We have a much more insightful Donna inside of the show than we do the movie. This is where, again, I put the bias take forward because Donna is literally just a catalyst for certain actions, a little bit of an obstacle for Laura to look into. Mm -hmm. There's not much we really get in which it's taking time with Donna. Like, it's entirely Laura Palmer's roller coaster that we're going through. So could there be a possibility where, like, Donna is, like, in the background, like, I always knew deep inside and I just never wanted to admit it. Maybe, but... And truthfully, I think that there's so much more of a mystery that it's too obscured for me to make that judgment. You have no headcanon? Not headcanon at the moment. It's something that I'm poking at with my brain. I'm poking my brain with my brain. I think both arguments have a compelling reason. As confusing as this is probably going to sound, I feel that even if Donna did know Laura better... Donna doesn't know that she knew Laura better Mm. in the sense that she says it to James with such confidence that I knew Laura better than she realized. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Donna really can say that confidently that that's the case, even if it might be true. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot more up in the air how well Donna really knew Laura. And, and again, in the moment, if we're taking in universe, 
in this moment out in the cold with James, the day of the murder, there's a whole lot of emotions going on mm -hmm. that I'm not saying it's, it's Donna's well thought out statement. <laughs> I just think it's an interesting one to look at and assess the validity of it. Yeah. Because it seems to be one of the motivators pushing Donna forward into season one that she knew Laura well enough that she is best equipped to try to research this, mm -hmm. that she's keeping information from the police. <laughs> Why are Donna and James taking it upon themselves to do this? And I think that for Donna, there might be something to prove. Something to prove or things to lose. Say, for example, if more and more of the investigation continues to push through the identity of the cameraman, mm -hmm. the overall connections between each of these individuals, especially whether or not they might be not necessarily true, but proven to be true by the eyes of the law, then she loses a lot in the terms of like James and her overall, I would imagine, personal well-being on whatever invasiveness that might be happen taking the power into her own hands especially with this overall power vacuum inside of the relationship could be something mm -hmm. that is argued forward she now has things to protect she has things that she has to secure because at this point she is at a loss and at that point like for the most part if you look through the rest of the series at this point there is an amount that donna is trying to secure for herself and try to understand for herself and keep hold to herself with basically the world around her kind of saying contradictory, mm -hmm. no, uh, you you can't have this for yourself. Uh, get used to what's happening right now. And that ebb and flow and that push and shove eventually dials into the point of what's happening, who am I, whose like, daughter am mm -hmm. I? Yeah. Do you think our general uncertainty with regards to Donna in these aspects, in assessing her understanding of Laura and the situation, even after all this time, all these different materials, do you think it is a strength of Donna's character? Yes. Or do you think it is a weakness that we don't really know her after all this time? I think it's a strength to overall focus on how her weaknesses are sort of like pushing her deeper and deeper into this overall rabbit hole that she's crafted for herself in the name of something as I would imagine... For whatever word is appropriate to parallel her life with a soap opera, it is her constant trials to a love, whether it is a love of a past friend, a love of a partner, or for her understanding where the love of her family has contradicted her. I think that her constant pushing and pulling with the accent of something such as the film showing her being shoved into a hurricane, it does make her compelling. I thought for a moment you meant literally, and I'm like, that didn't happen. <laughs> I would have loved that you, scene, but I don't, don't remember, remember Donna being where she shoved gets, into a hurricane. Yeah, no, the drug moments as well as her trying to sure. prove herself to Laura, those were their big hurricane moments. It's something that you, I kind of, at the very least, on my own sense, I hope that she's able to find a way out because she is an active character working against the grain, not for the sense of a status quo per se, but for greater ideals that are worth fighting for. I just think it's interesting that for how much you and I criticize the writing of James and Donna mm -hmm. throughout the entire series, yeah, to hear you say that the lack of clarity, you could argue, 
is a good thing with her character Mm -hmm. is interesting because it seems like all along the way, each Mm -hmm. step of the way, there was very little we liked about Donna. And yet it does sound as though you're saying when you step aside from it, step back, you are liking the character more or finding more depth. Yep, I do think that there is some more depth. I think there's more possibility. And I do think in a strong like sense of taking that step back and looking at the larger whole, it is something that I do find compelling. It's just the small instances that make their way up to there, if you will. Like, you can still do something that I think is inherently a correct choice, something that I think is a compelling choice, but still do all the wrong things along the way. Or not necessarily even the wrong things, mm. but things that would be damaging to a general experience. I'm not as convinced yet. I guess to me it's like if like eight out of 10 writing choices involving Donna, I either felt mixed or negative about, mm-hmm. I don't come out loving the character. Like it's hard for me to fully, <laughs> fully go into that. I think there's great moments with Donna isolated Fair. throughout the whole thing. I also think you could make an argument just to return very briefly to the motivations behind Donna and James in the woods that night in the pilot. You could argue that in a very real feeling way, perhaps with Donna and James together that is their closest way of keeping laura alive and replicating her Mm -hmm. in the sense that you could argue a person is defined by their relationships and by the feeling that it was like to be with them and it's not just that james is the closest person to laura therefore dot 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 but more so that when james and donna are together it's like Laura's still there in a way. Mm-hmm. She lives through them. But then when Maddie shows up, you have someone <laughs> who I think eclipses this in a way that, at least in the moment I'm reading it as, if both James and Donna were looking for Laura in each other, when Maddie comes along, James is given Laura 2.0. Yep. And by that point, I think Donna has legitimately fallen for James. Like, I'm not sure in the pilot if she's in love with James or in love with the fact that being with James is more of Laura Palmer with them. It's the very much a literal wrench thrown into the soap opera to the very common, common, common thing that you see inside of a soap opera to the point that it is parody. It's someone who is a relative to another person mm-hmm. who looks just like that overall relative to s- kind of like spit into the overall new norm that's starting to form in order to try to push that conflict. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. And just to kind of radically shift all of this now. So we've gone through all the David Lynch films over the course of these podcast episodes. And this Twin Peaks pilot would be nestled release date wise in between Blue Velvet after Industrial Symphony and before Wild at Heart. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you think the international pilot fits in the filmography of David Lynch? And then kind of alongside that, how does your feelings on this pilot change or grow or be influenced in terms of perspective from having gone through Lynch's films? So are you asking me what, how I would consider this amongst his other filmography in the sense that if this is to be considered a David Lynch film? Yeah. I'm asking you two questions at the same time, at least. Well... <laughs> If I had to say it, if I had to consider this as a David Lynch film, this would be the weakest David Lynch film. Mm-hmm. This would be... I agree. Right on the statistical bottom list, but mostly because this is so obviously an episode from a TV show that does not fit in this format. Mm-hmm. It is so awkwardly placed 
this was not a great choice. Maybe it was a necessary choice, maybe it was a needed choice, and maybe it was something that helped it along the way. But as far as a piece of media goes, it was a bad choice in the respects of the media in its intended form. Double checking then, would you also say that this is a weaker product of the international pilot than the grandmother or rabbits, which are both longer short works? Yes. Because the rabbits is kind of like a series. I know Dumbland you already have entire loathing for, but I can safely bring up rabbits, I think, in this comparison, right? You can. Okay. It's still worse. Yeah, because at least rabbits to you felt kind of complete. Rabbits felt complete. It felt like its own singular thought, its overall structure. Any of the David Lynch films, though the, the beginnings and ends were the way that they were, they were still structured in a format that I felt fit the format. Mm-hmm. Like, I can say that for the most part, even if Dune is very quite clunky, I can still say at the end of the day, this is a film that felt like was made like a film. Mm-hmm. Call it my biases or what have you. This does not feel like a film by any capacity. This feels very similar in the same respects to something being obviously a show like you and I have been exploring Disney sequels lately, mm-hmm. literally having episodes of a broadcast being muddled together sure. and having a loose idea of like how we're going to put them all together by adding <laughs> some extra scenes on top of it. This is literally that case. The international pilot would be the direct-to-video Disney sequel of David Lynch films. This is the Tarzan and Jane of David Lynch That's films. That's incredible. Even though, obviously, as a pilot, we love it. We love it. You say, I, it, well, you say it with hesitation. We love it, but I love the other pilot more. Like, I have a favorite no, child I just, in this I, Yeah, game. I just meant the pilot in general when I said yeah, that. Yeah, I love the pilot, but it always has to have that asterisk. It just inherently exists with that asterisk. Yeah, if you look at the one that aired, like, as the regular pilot, not the international, not ended, you like it. You yeah. love it. Yeah. You want some more of it. Yeah. I tried so hard to get more of it. And the logs, put the log on there, butter my toast with that sweet, sweet log. Do it. So you've mentioned before you're not as necessarily prone to looking at the stylistic elements of David Lynch's films, more the thematic elements. Mm -hmm. But knowing that it is David Lynch directing it and knowing what you know about David Lynch's style, were there any things about the way this film looked, felt, was paced, etc., that felt especially interesting as a David Lynch work? Not too much, but for the most part, we ended up seeing some very clever uses of mirrors that was fun, but also whether intentional or not, I think that the flow of camera work is just very common in David Lynch work in general. I think Richard Bamer's insight, especially that we recently read mm-hmm. through and having that go with the flow attitude very much translates to whatever happens inside of the pilot or international pilot, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think that that go with flow attitude and trust the actor's work is also where we ended up with people kind of dipping their big toes into the pool more than splashing in, which again, I there are amazing performances through Twin Peaks. You can't tell too much initially by the pilot. Some and of these actors get much better as the show goes much on. Much better. Much better. I would yeah. I would statistically say, you are free to call me out on this, but I am certain that every actor gets better. Some more noticeably have a lower starting point than others. Exactly. Say it like that. I think it's interesting to consider the protagonists of Lynch's films because you would agree with me, I think, that if the international pilot is taken as its own film... Dale Cooper is the main character. Yeah. 
there's a lot of characters and there are a lot of supporting characters, but the closest thing to a protagonist is Dale Cooper. Either Dale Cooper or Truman, but with the overall ending, if we are to assume this as a film, yeah. uh, it leans more heavily into Coop's alley. So Cooper is interesting, though, in comparison to other David Lynch characters because is he especially like Henry or Jeffrey who kind of just stumbles into these events and sort of has almost like a hapless passivity? I don't think so. Is he like Nicolas Cage's character in Wild at Heart, which would come out later? I don't know if he's that much like that either. I, I don't know if he's like any of the other protagonists. I, he's not like the any of the other protagonists at first, but if you peel back the layers, I think that there's still elements that are very similar to how Cooper is overall behaving. In this respect, Cooper, though he has part of this larger investigation, his insight is in a beyond another level in which I still would argue he very much is just taking steps in a general direction. All the antics, like such as the discovery of the killer and the overall mm -hmm. understanding of like where this killer is coming from and how characters are realizing that and how the other characters moving the action around. Cooper's not doing any of that. Cooper is just around kind of in an ad advisory role and maybe something to poke at some of the mm -hmm. other players of this. But for the most part, he's still in that passive David Lynch role mm -hmm. where it's the world doing things, not him. I think that in a few episodes later, when we're playing with rock tossing, you can act more onto those overall actions and see that in Cooper. But in this, no, I, I, I don't think genuinely there's ever a point where Cooper does anything to take action other than stand to the side and say a few lines. If anything, it's just a more confident variant of let's even like put up an example of a racer head. Mm -hmm. in which, like, there is antics going around. This person is taking responsibility for the actions and is trying to handle things, but for the most part, is still built onto the whims of things around him, and only some mild insights along the way can we see his intelligence. I, I guess I'm less convinced in the sense that I think Henry from Eraserhead doesn't take as much of an assertive role as Cooper does. And I, I think that one of the through lines you could look at, though, is that mm -hmm. a lot of David Lynch protagonists fall under this window of character who's relatively normal and mundane in their lives, but gets swept up in something far outside their control, often mm. criminal, often supernatural. And it's by the end, some of them are successful, able successfully able to overcome or survive mm -hmm. and some not so much. So like you can look at Jeffrey from blue velvet as someone who comes out the other end like surviving and thriving and succeeding yeah. through his own efforts or just luck. Mm -hmm. You can look at someone for comparison, like the Pullman main character in lost highway. And it seems like he completely was consumed mm -hmm. by the things that were happening. Mm -hmm. um, Wild at heart, more of an optimistic ending. Mulholland drive, I think is a little, sketchier leading into negative, right? I mean, it literally like a nightmare. the person is dead by the end of yeah. the overall movie. No, so you're right. Yeah. It's just negative. It's just negative. And then Inland Empire, I think you can read positive. If you... <laughs> I'm positive that some people are dead in I'm positive something accents. happened at the end Positively. of Inland Empire. So it seems like a 50-50 chance in a David Lynch film. Are you going to be consumed by these things or are you going to survive them and <laughs> succeed? I think the most clear success story is again, Nicholas Cage's character in wild at heart in that he's able to 
you know, continue this passionate relationship and have a, you know, a relationship with his son. Yeah. But that's after being imprisoned for years. Yes. And, you know, having to have a literal magic fairy intervene. Mm-hmm. When you think of all these things and you look at Dale Cooper in the broad spectrum, not just in the pilot, but overall, which side do you want to put him closer to? He's not affected by the world in the respect that he has these conclusions where something like grandiose or poor happens to him by the end, unless you want to go forward with the knowledge of Twin Peaks with the overall Red Room in I which think, that would be the damned end. I think that's what I'm bringing up. That's that's where it would likely be. If, in the, the if we view of, that as the ending. If we call that as the ending, and judging by 25 years later being inside this overall Red Room and knowing the context of yeah. that, yes, in the isolation of this existing and outside of the overall series, this would have been the biggest sort of like shrug question mark. It's like, well, it seems like he's having a good yeah. time. Is that good? So with the return coming up, presumably it sounds like you're saying we'll be picking up with Cooper in a bad spot. Is that what you're suggesting? If not, I'm going to be thoroughly surprised. So my question then is, by the end of the return... Do you think he's going to be coming out on top or is he going to be in this bad spot? I mean, of course, this is all speculation. Mm -hmm. This is just for fun because once you see it, we can't ask these questions. I think that at the end of the series, I think that there will be Twin Peaks coming out of a good spot. I don't know about Cooper. I think Mm -hmm. that if I had to garner a guess with how Twin Peaks is broadly placed... The fact that it's not like a movie like this in which there you have the chance to explore all these characters and it can go on for, I think you said, 18 hours. Mm-hmm. I think that's where there will be plenty of individuals who are damned and Cooper could be amongst those ranks. Mm. But on the broader whole, I do think Twin Peaks is going to come out better. Okay. That is very, very interesting to hear. I have two wonderful and strange questions of the week for you. First one is if this pilot was new, we have to pretend you know, hypothetical realm right now, that Twin Peaks was not a show that came out. It's just, we got this new pilot that was brought out and shown to the studios. If it was new today, do you think it would get picked up by a cable network, ABC, Showtime, Netflix? Do you think it would get picked up at all? And then do you think if it did get picked up, would it be successful? This is in the isolated case that Twin Peaks has to exist in because there are plenty of works that were inspired by Twin Peaks and crafted. If somehow in that weird bubble that other people are inspired by themselves and for some reason their thoughts came to their mind. Yeah, we have to assume that X-Files, The Sopranos, Lost, all the prestige television still happened. Still happened. For whatever reason, everyone had the same Dancing Man dreams (laughs) inside of their sleep. Regardless. You just wouldn't have media that directly references like has like a Red Room scene or something. It's... It's the fact that in its point of isolation, in the part that this has not been seen as much, this would be the biggest gamble in whether or not like it would be successful today. I think if it premiered, I think that people would be entertained. I think that they would be curious. I think that they would see what is happening with it, enjoy some of the quirks, and maybe you'd be able to get some gifs and some memes out of it. But I do some genuinely... gifs? Gifs and some memes. But... I think that right now the market is filled with so many fantastic creative individuals mm-hmm. putting forward their best shots and all sorts of media that it is a much more like harder space to overall get something to stand out mm-hmm. and go against the grind in such a way. At this point, if we are to assume Twin Peaks came through and other things were unlike Twin Peaks, there's still nothing like Twin Peaks. But will that 
feeling mm-hmm. outshine when we are in a far separate day and age. There's more diverse media right now. There's more diverse types of shows. And if you want your fix of a dramatic long form series that gets into dark or weird places, you have options. You have options. Whereas you didn't really have as much options when it aired originally. No. I, I personally am skeptical that it would get picked up by ABC or a cable network. I don't watch cable anymore and I haven't for years. So I can't tell you exactly what's on anymore, but I find that a lot more of the adventurous and weird territories are picked up by streaming platforms. They are more Uh, often. The question is like which stream platform at this time. I think that the one that probably focuses on shows in which like have like concepts that can lean into the stranger territory, but also are able to flourish in some capacity by those who are faithful to the overall streaming service. I think the strongest contender is probably Hulu. Mm. I think genuinely like Hulu's big focus is a lot on things such as TV. Most of the things I see advertised off of Hulu are TV and it's not going to be something that I would imagine be too overshadowed by other things apparent on the platform. The I, get, I get a little confused with Hulu, like what they have access through because of like Fox and yeah. other affiliations. Cause when I think of like TV on Hulu, I'm thinking, man, I've been meaning to watch Atlanta. I've seen the first episode and really liked it. And I'm going to watch more of that. And yeah. Atlanta has been compared to Twin Peaks and I think occupies a very individual space in television that's super eccentric and its own thing. Yeah. And surreal. And it's like if there's a space in Hulu for Atlanta, I think there's a space in Hulu for Twin Peaks if we're going by that logic. I mean, there's also the fun bits of, like, some people compare Riverdale of, like, the overall dead girl, if you will, or... Well, that show goes off the rails. Yeah, it goes off the rails. I've made a comment before. I would love to check out Riverdale because of how stupid it gets. (laughs) It gets real weird, and that's distributed through Netflix, right? Yes. Yeah. So I I still think streaming is the main way this would go, even if it starts as something that could be on the air. Oh, and then my second wonderful and strange question of the week is a bit more open and simple. Simple and clean, one could say. Yes. The answer is yes. I'm going with yes. What is your favorite thing about Twin Peaks? Yes. (laughs) Going into the return, it feels like we're ending a phase of our podcast and beginning a new phase of the podcast. All is said and done. What's your number one favorite thing about Twin Peaks? What number one favorite thing about Twin Peaks? Forgive the absolute bonkers answer i think it's bonkers when have you given an answer that's not bonkers uh every time because i am the most stable part of this show i am the one who says all the right things so i think it's just it's wonderful and strange nature in a broader scope i think that in truth this show gives off not only independent vibes that i don't really see in much other media myself but there's also the aspect of where the show is willing to play with and go. For one, like, I love the fact that the show literally ends, whether or not, like, by cancellation, it feels like a complete ending, despite the fact having the worst thing happen to it possible. Mm -hmm. I think that having enough to play around and speculate and dabble in and continue to theorycraft with people is incredibly engaging and incredibly fun. It's incredibly endearing. The fact that I literally have right by me a series of newspapers, a series of collectible card art, two series of overall books based off of the major characters' perspectives, and also a curious matter of like a secret history starring Meriwether Lewis 
in a fair amount of the pages. It's a series that takes you places, and yet you still find yourself in the same spot, but not in a bad way. And I'm very thankful for that. I think that that genuinely is one of the most appealing parts to me, is that it all centers around this little town of small problems that are felt much bigger by the individuals felt around it. This is a very character-based show, and I think that as far as these characters goes, wherever their biases go, wherever the biases of the histories go, whether or not the strange histories of the independent media and how it contradicts with one another, it remains fun for all those above reasons. It is truly a piece of media that I can concretely say is wonderful and strange. Does that count as one reason? Yes. Okay, cool. Thank you. Just, just double check. I told you the answer was yes. Yeah, that's fair. The, yes. I I think the number one thing that I value about this show is is the character writing. And it's it's not 100% every character equally. Uh, no. Obviously, we have favorites and least favorites. Mm-hmm. But it's the extent to which, with such a large cast, so many of them have such an arc and trajectory even though the show ended after two seasons, it feels like so much was jam-packed into those two seasons and such a short airing time of like, what, two years it was probably on television, maybe three, mm-hmm. that it, it just feels like an entire world was created out of the inner lives of these people and their intersections. And mm-hmm. the more you learn about them, the more you dive into them, so often the more they're enriched and nuanced and become some of my favorite characters in television in general, uh, whether we're talking live action or animation. There's not many characters that have the eccentricity or depth of some of these characters and just the sheer variety of personalities we get in the casting. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all of them are winners. Mm-hmm. And I I find them to be just so interesting to think about talk about and pursue. And if you view Twin Peaks or a particular part of Twin Peaks from the lens of a specific character, it's so interesting just how many things open up. Like if you view Twin Peaks through the eyes of Bobby or you view Twin Peaks through the eyes of the log lady or you view Twin Peaks through the eyes of Dr. Jacoby, it changes the feeling of the show, of the town, of the world in such a way where new things can pop up and new insights can pop up. And I don't know many shows where that's as true as it is with Twin Peaks. That there's so many perspectives to tap into. That it feels like podcasts like ours and the great number of many other great podcasts that are also happening right now or have happened in the past or will happen in the future, you can't exhaust it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those shows that I don't know if everything could ever be said because of the character writing. And there's always that more to dive into. Now, could you please say something funny and amusing to end this episode? I don't think I need to. Is that your ending? Yeah. <laughs>